is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silverstein, and with me as always is my co-host, Megan Bojarski. Hey, everyone. Uh, we are your hosts through this uh, chronological tour of every Disney movie ever. We're doing a special kind of bonus episode, just like we did last time, Adaptation Clashes. So we have a group of two amazing guests with us today, uh, and we have all chosen at least one, maybe 17, who knows, adaptations of Peter Pan to watch, learn about, talk about. As the Disney movie said, all this has happened before and it will all happen again. And while that's a lovely message about childhood and adventure, it's also about the fact that there are just so many adaptations of this movie that may or may not, you know, be good or amazing or, you know, awful. But we'll, we'll get into that. This gives us the chance to really kind of interrogate the story, talk about how it's been played with over time. In our traditional episodes on Peter Pan, we talked about how and why Disney made the movie the way that they did. But we all know that adaptations can vary wildly from each other, and the Peter Pan ones absolutely do. So we'll talk about how they connect to Disney, how they connect to the source material, how they're wacky and crazy in their own unique ways. Uh, today we're going to give a rundown of eight, maybe, maybe more, maybe less. There's too many to be sure. Uh, different adaptations of Peter Pan. I'm also including sequels to Peter Pan. You know, like we said, all this has happened before and it will all happen again. So sequels to Peter Pan kind of are just adaptations. But eventually we will uh, crown a best adaptation from the options we've worked with and set them up against the Disney version. And I think it will be very clear based on my comments in our original podcast that it's going to be really hard for something to lose to the Disney version. Uh, so joining us on this particular uh, outing to Neverland are uh, two guests. With us we have uh, Victoria. Victoria, if you want to go ahead and say hello and introduce yourself. Uh, hi, I'm Victoria, lifelong Peter Pan enthusiast, first-time podcaster. <laughs> well, welcome. We're happy to be uh, the home of several, I think, first-time podcast guests, um, which is which is fun because podcasting is fun. And if every... If every uh, cis cis white male can do it, then uh, so can everybody else. Also, also joining <laughs> us today is uh, our editor Tessa Suela, joining us on microphone for the first time, finally. Hey, yay! I like how that sounds. Like I've been like muted on all of your previous <laughs> podcast episodes, just like sitting there in the background. I am Tessa, the editor of this podcast. I, I'm trying to think of this is not my first podcast, but. Currently, I have two podcasts, one that I'm hosting and one that I'm a frequent guest on. 
Um, one of them is Nanny Og's Book Club, which is a Terry Pratchett reread podcast. I am currently reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels with my friend Nigel. We just released episode 33, so we are like quite a bit into them. Um, going postal, you can find that anywhere that you listen to podcasts at Nanny Og's Book Club. Um, I'm also a frequent guest slash guest host on um, Fangbangers podcast, which is, as described, a chaotic horny podcast about the chaotic horny HBO show True Blood. So a bunch of my friends are kind of co-hosting it and rotating hosts together while watching True Blood. The last episode that just came out for that one was um, the episode on season two, episode six, Hard Hearted Hannah. Um, So, yeah, lots of podcasting. Great to be here. <laughs> well, welcome both. It's good to have have you both here, uh, and I'm excited to see what what Peter Pan opinions uh, we all end up having. So, Megan, you wanted to take us uh, as kind of a refresher on the source material, meaning not the Disney animated version, but the actual book slash play that this is all based on. Slash short stories slash other books. Yeah, as we talked about in our other episode, J.M. Barry kind of has like six, I think, versions of Peter Pan. Because, of course, we have the story of just him as a baby who was once a bird but still believes he's a bird. And then, of course, the book and, and the play and so many different versions. I just wanted to cover some of the things uh, from the book, especially, that stood out to me or stood out as something that is very different than Disney's version. Because, of course, Disney's version is so often the one that people are most familiar with. So especially for something adaptation-heavy, just wanted a brief discussion of that original version, which is pretty much impossible to say. But essentially, when we look at the Barry versions, I'll put it, of Peter Pan, uh, the concept... In a lot of weird ways, I I believe the introduction of Peter Pan is before they become human, all children are birds. And Peter Pan became a baby, but hated the idea that he wasn't still a bird, so he just flew away anyway. Which gives me some weird body horror vibes, just for the record. But we pick up with actual kind of Peter Pan lore Going back to the Darling family specifically. So we still get the same basic characters as we see in the Disney movie, but there is a darker tone. There are many points where Peter is described as being manipulative. There are several points where they flash back to the parents freaking out that their children have been kidnapped, which of course is not in the Disney version. Let me see. Uh, A couple more things. By the end of it, Neverland is mostly empty. So Hook is dead. Very dead. No room for him to not be dead. Tinkerbell's also dead. The Lost Boys all decide to move in with the Darling family. And so Peter is alone. And so his way of dealing with this is by promising to take all of Wendy's descendants on adventures kidnap in entire generations of young girls and make them his mother bride. Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm being very critical. There are lovely parts of the source material, 
But suffice to say, there is plenty of darkness, and many of these adaptations like to play with the idea of that darkness. I feel like there's so many times where it's like, now we're going to do the dark version of, of the thing, but the dark version of the thing is also the original version of the thing. Mm-hmm. But because Disney has, like, just has taken over the sort of like cultural consciousness of so many of these stories that like like i wasn't thinking about until i was watching one of the movies i watched for this about the darling children actually being missing in the story because i'm most familiar with the disney version and that version kind of always felt to me even though it's never explicitly said that like in my head that all takes place in like one night like they're gone Mm -hmm. from like midnight to like 4 a.m or whatever yeah and like that's it you know it's not it's not this like there there is no passage of time in the real world while they're in neverland the same way it's like a christmas carol it's still christmas day Peter did yeah. it all in one night <laughs> <laughs> other than the final battle between uh peter hook and the crocodile which is is just beautiful and weird in so many ways my favorite part of the source material is the time passage because the mom is so sad and depressed and the window always must be open so that the kids can come back. But the dad is so guilt-ridden that he tied up Nana the dog that he lives in her cage and has people hired to take him to and from work and all other social engagements in the dog crate. And this becomes a thing. I totally forgot about like, that. It's a the thing in London. <laughs> that just like, everyone's like, oh, there's crazy dog kennel darling over there. Which is the best possible response. It like very much confuses Nana, who like is like, this is my house. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, surprisingly, one of the best parts of the novel is actually in the horror of you know, yeah, these kids were away from home for a while. Like, there's a, a slow existential dread about the time that's passing. Because the parents are going, are our children dead? And the children are literally forgetting their own parents. So it's, there's so many, like, horrible things there. And Disney's like, nope, they didn't even notice. It was all over by the time they got home from a play. Again, it's it's an interesting choice, and you know, given that the Disney movie is like seventy minutes long or whatever, it sort of makes sense here. Whereas both versions of this that I watched uh, for this are a lot longer, and so therefore you do feel more of the of the passage of time, even though it's only relevant really in, in one of them. But again, we'll we'll get into all that. If each of our guests could briefly kind of just explain, like, what did you know about Peter Pan? What media have you consumed? before this podcast and then what are you specifically talking about today i don't remember a time when i didn't know about peter pan um it's always just been like childhood comfort story thing um definitely the disney version uh holds a a strong place in my heart but i do also remember my mom reading the book to me uh so i have seen like a lot of the movies because it was just it was like my favorite thing and like as long as I can remember I've been like obsessed with Captain Hook like I wanted to be Captain Hook so bad and um I remember being like 
probably four years old and my mom was pregnant with my brother. And I said to her, I know it's going to be a little boy because he's going to be Peter Pan and I'm going to be Captain Hook. <laughs> Uh, great. so yeah, <laughs> the, um, version that I decided to go with for this is the, um, musical that they, um, originally made in the fifties as a, a Broadway production. And then they moved it for, um, television production and it had a couple of, a couple of stagings for TV. And then this is the, um, 1960s version of it that ended up going out on uh, VHS. I do not remember if I read the novel first or if I saw the Disney version first because they're so intertwined in my mind from my childhood. Peter Pan was definitely high up on the list of things that problematic British literature that young Tessa was obsessed with. (laughs) So Peter Pan and Jungle Book were probably like the top tier um, of those. They're so intertwined in my mind that it wasn't until literally today when I was like looking through my previous stuff on it that I realized that the line, it's all happened before and this will all happen again, isn't actually the first line in the book. It's the line in the Disney movie. The first line in the book is all children except one grow up. So they're very clearly enmeshed in my head as being like sort of part of my childhood experience of this particular story. I have seen so many Peter Pan adaptations. I am particularly fond of the 2003 one, which I believe Ryan is going to talk about um, today. But uh, for the podcast today, I watched Hook, which is sort of a adaptation slash sequel um, to to the um, original story. It was, pr- it was a co-production between Disney and Paramount that came out in 1991, so a year after I was born. So I had definitely seen this film before when I was a child, but I didn't remember it, and I hadn't seen it in probably like 20 years. So it was really cool revisiting that, and I'm excited to talk about it. I also watched the David Lowry film that came out this year, Peter Pan and Wendy, which I believe came out on Disney Plus. I think it skipped a theatrical release. So those are the two adaptations that I watched. So as I've talked about multiple times on our podcast, although not in these words, I am very much a product of what I would call cultural osmosis, which is I know pop culture, but I haven't necessarily seen or read all of it. All of my life, I knew the, like, I am your father moment, uh, even though that's not, even though what we remember isn't quite the line from Star Wars, but I had never seen Star Wars. Uh, And Peter Pan was a unique experience of that for me. As our listeners may remember, I saw the Disney version, but I thought I had because I saw the Disney sequel and the 2003 live action. And somehow those just smashed together in my head and I believed I had seen the Disney version. And I hadn't. Of course, I have at this point. Helps a little bit. But I... Let's see. I have now read the book. Um, I have seen the play at least once. Although there's a few different versions of that as well. As I've talked about multiple times, 
Uh, I've seen Once Upon a Time, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot today, since uh, the first half of season three had a lot to do with Neverland and Peter Pan. And then I specifically watched two movies for this. I had chosen one and then I watched the other mostly as a palate cleanser. So I watched uh, 2022's The Lost Girls, which is based on the novel of the same name by Laurie Fox. It's more of kind of an indie film. A lot of, you know, pretty big stars, including uh, Ian Glenn, uh, who was Jorah Mormont from Game of Thrones, Emily Carey, who was just in House of the Dragon. We have Lewis uh, Partridge as Peter Pan, uh, who also was in an uncredited role in 2015's Pan, which is kind of cool. It also has Ava Fillory, who played Wendy in, I think, 2020's Come Away, which was kind of a blurring of magical realism Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland. So oddly connected to the Peter Pan mythos, kind of a uh, Treasure Islandy weird casting situation. So I watched that one, which is basically a sequel of the original that plays with the idea that it is extremely damaging to young girls to go to Neverland and experience the highs and lows of Neverland men. And it's a bit unclear whether they all have psychosis it's all symbolism to represent toxic masculinity. I don't know. We'll talk about it more later. But it's it's a strange one. Uh, but it mostly follows Wendy Darling II, who is, in the book, Wendy's great-granddaughter, in the movie, her granddaughter, and then her daughter, Barry, and kind of explores how they react to you know, the influence of Peter Pan and Hook in their lives. And then because that is quite a trip of a movie, I also watched Return to Neverland, which is also a sequel, but this was the Disney sequel, where Wendy's daughter Jane goes to Neverland. Uh, so similar kind of themes uh, with two major differences. Number one, she actually has a good time there. And number two, Peter Pan doesn't come for her. Actually... Captain Hook kidnaps her in a case of mistaken identity. But lots to lots to delve into there, but those are kind of my two big ones for today. Yeah, and, and for my part, uh, Hook is a movie I uh, grew up with and have seen many, many, many times. We owned it on chess. Uh, there are lines from that movie that I frequently quote from memory, so I did not revisit it for this podcast, but I will be able to speak about it. For this, I watched two movies I had not seen before. Uh, one, the 2003 version of Peter Pan, because at least two of the people on this podcast threatened to yell at me if I did not watch it for this. <laughs> I wonder who that could have been. <laughs> and then I also watched Pan, the 2015 Joe Wright movie, which is a prequel to the Peter Pan story, because it's a movie that I was like excited about when it was coming out. Uh, several years ago and then when it came out the reviews were terrible and so I did not watch it and then I was like well it, now is the time to go back Joe Wright I think is is an interesting an interesting filmmaker who is kind of all over the place but I can confirm that Pan is a terrible movie um, 
to give a to give like a brief synopsis uh you know it, it's like the peter pan origin story it's like this is how peter you know not not only gets to ne- neverland but you know becomes peter pan the the big bad is blackbeard as played by hugh jackman and so young peter pan and young uh james hook team up to take down blackbeard there's also a book tiger lily romance uh, Tiger Lily is played by Rooney Mara, and just to briefly touch on it, because there's not a, a there's not a ton in this movie that I think is really even worth talking about in the context of adaptation, because it feels more like a remix. Like they're taking all of these Peter Pan things and they're putting them in this movie and making it a prequel. And I will say it is visually stunning, but they try to get around the the indigenous people of ne- Neverland issue by they're, the way they try to present it is that these characters, this 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 is a fictional ethnic group that is native to Neverland and is not related at all to to Native Americans, even though visually there's still enough of the signifiers thereof. And obviously, like you know, like I said, Rudy Mara uh, is playing Tiger Lily, like named Tiger Lily. And I feel like I'm not going to say that makes it worse than the Disney adaptation, but that is not a solution to that particular issue. Like I can see what they were going for, but it's almost so glaringly weird, and like it, it's almost like shining a spotlight on it in a in a, somehow in a worse way because you're actually taking away representation. Like rather than being like, oh, we're going to like try to do better by the cultures that are represented in the story we're actually going to sort of like like make it even less specific and even less like i said rather than trying to to depict those people in a more realistic way you're going to lean further into the fantasy and it almost like dehumanizes their existence a little bit more because it makes them that they're just like not real at all if that makes sense these movies really just don't know what to do with that issue so many of the times I know that with both of my movies, they just basically said, we're, we're just not going to touch it. They, they don't exist in our worlds just because we don't want to have to deal with that question. Yeah. And in the 2003 Peter Pan, I feel like it's, it's trying to, yeah, it's certainly a more respectful form of representation than the animated Disney film. It is still very like non-specific native American. They sort of do minimize their role in the story um you know we we see other native characters besides Tyrelli, but we don't really get a lot of you know names or a lot of like development from those characters but it it at least is not uh overtly racist the way that the disney version is we want to talk about our different adaptations and racism since we've i feel like we can just get sort of get it out of the way and <laughs> because I was going to say, like, with Hook, it kind of takes a similar approach to what you were saying, Megan, where it's just like, we're not going to touch it. We're just not going to talk about it. As far as I remember, Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, there is no Tiger Lily in Hook. Like, she's missing. Like, there's no, none of that. So, again, 1991, probably for the best, knowing some of the conversations about race that were happening in film in 1991. I will say I actually was pleasantly surprised by how much I loved the character in Peter Pan and Wendy, um, the David Lowry version that came out this year, mainly because the character is played by an indigenous actor, Alyssa Wapatonic, and she is from 
The Big Stone Cree First Nation, she actually speaks Cree in the film, and David Lowry specifically said that one of the reasons that his script took so long was because he wanted to make sure he avoided the racial stereotypes of the original Disney film. And the fact that he cast an actor um, who is indigenous, that she is able to bring so much of her culture into the film, um, we don't see a lot of the other we don't see a lot of the other indigenous people. We, there's like maybe one scene um, with like a group of them or whatever, but it's mostly just her. Um, but she's given a very prominent role as well. Like she has an active role. She's not a stereotype. She feels like a fleshed out character. Um, she gives advice to Wendy at one point. And so like it, I was impressed that they managed to thread that needle of just being like, what if we just made this a real character? How crazy would that be? And so, like, I, of all the films I've seen, I actually think I might like this representation best, even if the film itself, I think, had some other issues. Mine is uh, definitely, um, I would say it's probably on the same or similar level to um, Disney version because it is not great. It's uh, still very heavily um, characterized uh, stereotype because they have this big number called or Agawaga. Yeah. I was, yeah. Um, so like, I mean, on the positive uh, side of that, they, um, because they are, it's a, a live production, they are actually played by people. So you don't get the cartoon look that um, gets in the way, I think of enjoying the Disney version. But it still uh, plays into a lot of the um, idea of like the noble savage type thing. And they are pretty much a bunch of white people. <laughs> At least um, Tiger Lily is. She's blonde, which is <laughs> it's a bit Lovely. jarring. But um, aside from that, she's uh, kind of a, a badass. And the, the Indians play a lot bigger of a role the um in the musical than they did in other versions that i've seen it's a lot more um two-sided the um relationship that they have you know with peter pan and the lost boys they uh help each other out a lot more instead of just being you know peter saved tiger lily and they're so happy it's that you know peter saved tiger lily and then tiger lily turned around and saved peter and so everybody's everybody's good. So that was definitely something that I uh, found a lot more endearing than, say, the, you know, the um, animated. Yeah, I think that there's, you know, there's kind of two different paths that these take. Um, one is to give more depth to the indigenous characters, which I think is pretty universally the better way to do it. It takes a lot of effort and obviously the musical did not did not like save everything but adding more depth to how they interact is such an important element um and then of course the other side which we've talked about is just entirely eliminating the indigenous people which to some extent feels like the easy way out instead of trying to fix the very problematic elements they just kind of hand wave and say that they don't exist um i know that in the lost girls they don't get brought up at all but to be fair neverland itself doesn't get brought up very much in that one but in return to neverland 
it's actually kind of disturbing to me. They do a lot of nostalgia in that one. So that came out in 2001. And so we see like different parts of Neverland that were big in the first movie. And so there is one shot of teepees and totem poles, which is its own problem, but they don't actually have any characters, which either means that the characters were not relevant or that they're not there anymore, which is kind of the vibe I got, which is worse. Uh, Worse to say that they were there and then there's just mysteriously not. Um, So unfortunately, I think that a lot of the adaptations just really couldn't find the right way to go on that kind of an issue. Yeah, and I think it's, at least for the best, it's safe to say that on the whole, it seems like they are better than the the Disney version, which is just like... Hard not to be. (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know, we we don't have to talk about it too much again, because we spent uh, a lot of time talking about that on our our full-length episodes on uh, that version, but... You know, it is, they are an important part of the Peter Pan story. And so, you know, they're, I, I do think that um, Peter Pan and Wendy, uh, at least on, on that front, I think, I personally, I think does the best job of uh, at least attempting to do those characters justice in a way that sort of balances the like, you know, real life representation with the fantasy setting of ne- Neverland. I think that, that to me is the new standard, at least for those characters and that aspect of the story. Uh, it is wild to me that that movie came out this year because I completely forgot that it that it came out this year because uh, Disney doesn't know how to make successful movies, uh, apparently, in 2023. It was a pandemic casualty in a lot of ways, I think, um, in terms of its marketing and its release. I will say just looking at this from like an adaptation perspective, the problems in the source material. And so I think that's why so many people struggle with adapting this particular um, issue, especially because if you're going to talk about Neverland as sort of a fantasy place, the problem is, is that J.M. Barry treats what he calls Indians who are representations of indigenous people like they are fantasy creatures. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're just as much playthings of Peter Pan as the pirates are, right? Like if he gets to fight the pirates and there's also sort of this element of like, sometimes he fights the, the Indians and sometimes they win and sometimes the Lost Boys win and, you know, it's all a game. And the problem is, is that I don't, I'm not even sure J.M. Barry met an indigenous person in his life, but he certainly had this fantasy of what it would be like to go on adventures and to play, you know, cowboys and Indians. Um, And that's sort of where a lot of the problems are. And so in order to adapt this without bringing that through, you really have to push back against the source material itself. Yeah. I think that the source material, especially since there are multiple source materials makes it kind of difficult. And then in so many ways, the Disney movie becomes the source material. So when you were looking at your adaptations, I want to know, were there moments that you looked at that you went, oh, they're doing Disney or, oh, they're explicitly not doing Disney. They're doing the book. Anything kind of like that that you picked up on multiple times uh, throughout the story? I would say that um, the 1960s, the musical, it has absolutely nothing to do with Disney. 
the costumes and the numbers and the way that it um that it flows uh very much uh probably evokes more of the original just because of the fact that it's a stage production and it's probably it's more book accurate as far as plot goes there are some places where it kind of you know tweaks things but for the most part you get the the story that you get from the book and um it's just it's a very different feel because it's like you get that live theater feel the way that they've um you know that they put it on i think both the adaptations that I watched have strong ties to Disney, uh, partially because at least one of them is a Disney production. Peter Pan and Wendy is it, it makes direct tie-ins to the animated film, um, especially with the score, um, which echoes a lot of um, the original Disney score, even though they don't reproduce any of the the songs um, that are from the original. But a lot of the scenes are pretty recognizable as well. I I have to say, though, that for something that is referencing the original Disney movie, David Lowry goes out of his way to point out like the updates that he's making to the story, especially in the character of Wendy and Tiger Lily. And so it is interesting to me that he is trying to tie it back to that film because it is a Disney production. But at the same time, he's very committed to making this like his own version and his own story. And so you don't really get a lot of echoes of the characters from the original, even though they have the same names and everything. Wendy, for an example, does not remind me of the Wendy from the original Peter Pan um, animation. Hook is interesting. Um, I would say it it doesn't have a lot um, in common with the animated Disney film beyond like adaptation elements. I would be really curious because you've seen it more, Ryan, if you notice any like direct connections to the the animated film that aren't just adaptation connections, because I didn't really notice a lot. The the style of the film and everything is very, very different. Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that comes to mind uh, in Hook that calls back specifically to the Disney version but this could also be my ignorance around other previous adaptations is I feel like the way that they, that hook is costumed. Yes, that's true. Does, you know, and the way that his, especially his mustache and the coat and everything, I feel like that costuming very much calls back to the, With the feather. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm actually looking at an image of Dustin Hoffman as hook right now. And I, yes, you are correct. A complete the transformation costuming. by the way. I, you know, I have to mention this. I don't know where to mention it. So I'll just mention it here. I think it's really interesting that there is a tradition on stage um, with Peter Pan that the same actor who plays the darling father plays Hook. And this is a tradition that is Mm -hmm. in the original like Disney animated film. It's in the 2003 um, because I think it's uh, Jason Isaacs who plays um, both. Yeah. But I watched two films that very specifically don't like, I mean, Hook doesn't even have like the darling father, so mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter. But also in Peter Pan and Wendy, it's um, Jude Law is Captain Hook and Alan um, Tudyk is Mr. Darling. And so it, it's interesting to me that like the movies that choose to break that tradition versus the ones that continue it. You jumped my questions. I was actually going to talk about that in just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Pan has some weird casting conventions 
Yeah, and and Pan Pan doesn't really have any connections to to Disney. I I do feel like you know Disney being notoriously litigious makes people very shy about even obliquely referencing things when they're adapting some of the same material. And being a prequel, you know, it, it this movie ends with like a hook and Tiger Lily falling in love with with each other, and then. Peter Pan and uh, Hook being like, and we'll be best friends forever and nothing is ever going to go wrong between us. <laughs> so like, it's, it really doesn't have much to do with the, the Disney version. And the 2003 adaptation, which I also watched, uh, I believe doesn't really have much connection to the Disney stuff. It is really drawing on the same source material. Um, and obviously there's, there's commonalities that way. But Uh, at least watching this for the first time and it could just be that i am hook biased because i've seen that movie so many times it this feels like the movie that hook is a sequel of (laughs) like in terms of tone and some of the aesthetic choices uh in the set design and then i actually found out that there is a connection between them because i was watching the credits and uh the uh, 2003 version is dedicated to Dodi Al-Fayed. Uh, and I was like, that's a name I recognize because uh, he was killed in the car crash with Princess Diana. Why is this movie dedicated to him? It's because he was an executive producer on Hook and act- actually was working on uh, what eventually became this version of Peter Pan when he was killed. And Princess Diana was the president of the Great Ormond Street Hospital that owns the rights to Peter Pan. And so there is actually a lot of connections between those two things, which I had no idea and like mind a little bit blown. But like the design of the crocodile, um, some of the stuff with uh, Hook and again, just like the overall, like a very lush kind of Neverland experience. You know, like I said, if, if this was the canonical version of Peter Pan that Hook is a sequel to, I would totally, I would totally buy it. Like, would watch these two together as a double feature, and I feel like it would actually work fairly well. You know, one of the things that I've been seeing a lot of, you know, just with this conversation, but with some of the research we did, is that Peter Pan has a very like incestuous development across adaptations. Um, so, kind of like we talked about with Treasure Island, with like Robert Newton was what a pirate is in all of these different versions. There are all of these weird little ties, um, like you have all pointed out. Um, One other interesting tie is that Hook, which we've referenced several times, was actually originally being made with Walt Disney Productions as a sequel to the animated film. And then Spielberg left the project... They moved away from Disney, they came back, it all went kind of crazy. But apparently that was originally supposed to be made with Disney. So it's all it's all tied together. Jumping back real quick, because the 2003 Peter Pan is an adaptation, as we mentioned, that does the um, dual role of Jason Isaacs playing Captain Hook and Mr. Darling. The way that... Uh, Wendy and Captain Hook interact in that movie, which I can't imagine is like really pushed this hard in the adaptation, is very much you know it, it sort of had my 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 daddy issues hackles raised, <laughs> where I was like, oh, this is a very interesting dynamic between the two of them, 
in terms of you know this this adaptation makes the choice to give wendy sort of her own pirate story so like she gets captured by the pirates in i believe in the source material i know for sure in the in the disney version but here this is more like she joins the pirates Mm -hmm. and you know hook hook is deceiving her and sort of using that as a ploy to have her under his control and you know to lord peter there and and you know there's there's all these sort of plot reasons for it but you know she she gets to be like red-handed jill or whatever and like develop this pirate legend like there's a lot more wendy and the pirates business in this which i think is also which i think is very interesting and you know i think it it goes beyond just the like girls can do anything boys can do kind of thing like i think it actually speaks to something specific in wendy's character where she is you know, on the precipice of adulthood, like, you know, as we all know, this whole story kicks off because it's time for her to leave the nursery and, you know, start her journey into womanhood and all the things that go with that. And I think this version really tries to tap into her sort of like identity crisis and like her oncoming adolescence and, you know, playing off her crush with Peter and this like interesting, I'm just going to vaguely call it attraction to uh, Captain Hook and, you know, the pirates and, and the freedom that that might mean for her and the different kind of lifestyle that would be than if she stayed at home and, you know, was brought up in polite society and, you know, very much has to fall into a very rigid definition of what womanhood is, you know, which is very similar to what the Lost Boys want her for. And this sort of tones down her also being a mom to the pirates and again, like, lets her kind of join the crew in a, in a certain way. I, I will say uh, The Lost Girls definitely tries to deal with the attraction that may or may not exist uh, between Wendy and Captain Hook. I'm going to just quickly respond to the Disney question, and then I think we need to go into a Captain Hook discussion, because that's where we seem to be drifting. To to respond to the, you know, how is Disney represented? Interestingly, both of my movies basically reference Disney when it comes to flying. So specifically in uh, The Lost Girls, there's this moment. um, So Wendy Darling II um, is British but grew up in the US. And so when Peter comes for her and they go flying, uh, instead of the iconic shot of them flying by Big Ben... They fly by the Statue of Liberty in what feels like a very deliberate, like, haha, we stole it, it's American now. Which is funny because the uh, director is Italian, but they, they really wanted the, the American angle uh, in it. But there's also like a heavy emphasis on what makes a person fly. So in uh, The Lost Girls, you know, uh, Peter tells her that he can f- she can fly with him. And she's basically like, oh, well, don't I need, like, some dust or whatever for that? And he's like, no, it's just happy thoughts. Uh, And kind of the opposite of that, Return to Neverland goes all in on the the dust. There's a whole thing where Jane needs to learn to fly. And so Tinkerbell, because she's jealous, because that's all Disney knows how to do with her, or did at that point, just starts dumping endless dust on Jane to try and force her to fly. And they kind of keep playing with the idea of, like, what really makes a person fly? Is it the happy little thought, 
or is it the faith trust and pixie dust? Yeah, th that is that is really interesting, and, and sort of again circling back to Captain Hook the character. Um, one other big change the 2003 version does is it lets him fly, like he like grabs Tinkerbell and douses himself with pixie dust, and you get this like you know spectacular air battle between uh, him and Peter, which is really fun. And also, I feel like if Disney had thought of it, they would have done that. <laughs> so it, it just felt like, you know, but it also feels like a, a very like 2000s thing of, you know, now that we can do quote unquote anything with with CGI, um, you know, why not have Captain Hook fly and uh, fight with Peter that way? It's interesting because in the Peter Pan and Wendy, which actually has some very like emotionally harrowing moments with Captain Hook in it. Like in some, it, it's very interesting the way they choose to explore <laughs> that character who's played by Jude Law, who looks very nice with long hair. I'm just going to put that out there. But there's this really interesting, very emotional moment at the end um, where the, the, Wendy sort of makes the whole ship fly. And so like, that's kind of like a, a callback to the 2003 but uh, Hook is like dangling off part of the ship and Peter actually tries to save him and tells him like think happy thoughts like so you can fly. And Hook before falling apparently to his death, I say apparently because, you know, um, he says that he can't think of any. Oh. Oh. <laughs> and it's like, like this very emotional moment of like he can't think of any like and it's so it is interesting to see like the sort of the juxtaposition of like, how do you fly and can Captain Hook fly? Like, is it all mechanical as long as you have pixie dust and you can think of something happy you can fly or is it a, a power that you lose as you become an adult? Like it is, it is very interesting. And that obviously comes up in Hook as well um, because a large plot line in Hook is the Lost Boys and Tinkerbell trying to, force Peter to remember how to fly, including um, prebucheting him off of a cliff, um, which is quite a funny sequence. Um, so yeah, it, it's really interesting to like dig into the mechanics of that. Actually, just briefly to, to return to return to Neverland, you know, so they're big on the dust, but you do have to have the happy thoughts too. The kind of, set piece of Return to Neverland is that Jane loved Peter Pan because her mom told her such happy stories. And then World War II happened. And so she's growing up in the London Blitz and that's why she doesn't have happy thoughts anymore. So they, they do play with these like really depressing angles of it that like kind of the whole crux of Return to Neverland. Uh, Hook gets her there but the the main plot theme is that she doesn't want to believe in nonsense when the world is terrible and so she tells and this is something that i'll ask you all about later she tells tinkerbell to her face i don't believe in fairies and tink just starts dying from one person saying it uh which is a fun kind of inversion of the theatrical tradition and so basically the Lost Boys are trying to force Jane to believe in magic and in fairies. And that's kind of her whole mission too. So she has to learn to believe or else she can't fly home. And they have to force her to believe or else Tinkerbell dies. 
So there does seem to be this, like, common thread of, like, depression versus flight and who who has a right to flight in different settings and situations. I just wanted to say that uh, I, too, die a little inside when someone says they don't believe in me. So that's very fair. fair. <laughs> I, it's interesting, though, because that even brings up Hook again, because like the whole idea that he doesn't believe that he's Peter Pan and he doesn't believe any of this stuff is really happening for like the first half of the movie or there's some explanation for it. Um, but it's interesting because the memory that causes him to be able to fly isn't a childhood memory. It's an adult memory of his son being born. So there is, again, that interesting, like, well, maybe adults can fly if they, like, recall, you know, happy things. Now that you've said that, I just need to bring in another adaptation we're not specifically talking about because major spoiler alerts. I am so sorry, uh, Ryan. I know you didn't want to be totally spoiled. Spoiler alert for season three of Once Upon a Time. The whole thing with Peter Pan in that one is he has to abandon his son in order to be able to fly and have magic and be happy. So it becomes this whole thing with parenthood and childhood and youth and happiness and depression. Yay. I, I just wanted to share that the uh, that Pan, the, you know, the, the 2015 movie Pan, I guess does have a weird connection to Return to Neverland, of all things, despite it being a prequel. Peter actually uh, is in an orphanage during World War II before he goes to Neverland, despite the original story being set like 40 years earlier, mm -hmm. um, canonically speaking. Um, the other weird thing is the way that it treats pixie dust is that uh, Peter and Hook meet when they are um, forced to mine for Pixum, which is the crystallized form of pixie dust. Like they really went, they were really trying to go like high fantasy Full avatar. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but that's Once Upon a Time too. Okay, but isn't it a thing in Once Upon a Time that they have to go through the mines to get fairy dust at various points? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Why is fairy dust somehow... Oh, I do. That, that is a thing. I forgot about that. I just remember Peter Pan being an asshole. <laughs> I think we're just going to talk for Hook for about hook like every time it'll be like yeah we can talk about this for a second but then <laughs> he's honestly the most compelling character throughout almost every single adaptation so it's hard not to talk about him the character that's launched a million fanfics probably <laughs> <laughs> so many i i just i okay ryan i know that we talked i think with treasure island about the uh the daddyification of our morally gray pirates. <laughs> um, but Captain Hook is definitely uh, somebody who, who deals with that as a character long before Colin O'Donohue in Once Upon a Time. There are so many erotic novels that are just like Captain Hook, ultimate sex object. <laughs> yep, yep. All the lost girl grows up and then comes back to Neverland, but oh. Who is this? Captain Hook is a lot sexier <laughs> than I remember him being. What are these feelings? Peter's cute, but Captain Hook is hot. <laughs> Everybody loves a good villain. Everyone loves a sexy villain, especially when he's wearing pirate clothes. So, <laughs> I, 
I, I think the thing that makes Hook so compelling as a character, too, is the fact that he is in, like, he's throwing hands with a child. <laughs> like, like he is literally fighting a child, but the child is not actually a child. I feel like, so here's the thing about Captain Hook. I feel like he's the only person who keeps being like, everyone's like, he's a child. You're fighting a child. How dare you? You're a villain. And he's the only person who's like, am I the only one seeing that he's like a mythical godlike being in his power? Like it feels like Captain Hook is like going insane because no one else can like see like who Peter actually is, which it just makes me laugh. I think part of that comes down to, you know, and we'll talk about this, at various points, I'm sure. Is Peter Pan good, bad, or chaotic neutral Mm -hmm. of it all? Because so many of the adaptations, like, either want Peter to be like, he's just a good, he's innocence incarnate, he's fun, he's, you know, all of that. Some of them go full dark. But I think that kind of the ambivalency of Pan is so integral to whether Hook is a crazy man fighting a child or the last, you know, defense against the trickster God (laughs) that is Peter Pan. (laughs) You know, in, in the books, they describe that, you know, children are innocent and heartless. And that is the core of Peter Pan, innocent and heartless. And I feel like that dichotomy is such a big deal when it comes to whether Hook is sympathetic or not. There's actually, this is a great point to bring it up. There's actually a really good line in, there's so many good lines in Peter Pan and Wendy, um, but there's a really good line where Hook tells Wendy, show me a child who knows the difference between right and wrong, and I'll show you an uh, adult who can't remember why the difference mattered. And it's like such a good illustration of the conflict in the book and in every adaptation. I don't know who wrote that. I don't know if it was David Lowry or not, but I was like, yes, like Peter Pan does not know the difference between right and wrong. (laughs) So, yeah. That was one of those lines, you know, that somebody came up with in the shower and was like, oh my God, get me a pen. I need to write this down. Yeah, I, I think what's really interesting about that whole dichotomy too is that like, you know, in theory, Peter Pan could grow up but the fact that he chooses to remain, you know, a child in, in in many ways, you know, and sort of retains that childhoodness, like, it it makes sense that Hook is his adversary. And, you know, when you bring in the double casting around Hook and uh, the father, like, you know, it, it, it works on a real thematic level, but it is this sort of core, you know, it I guess it is this sort of like, uh, manifestation of the conflict between childhood and adulthood and you know really putting them at odds in a very very specific way and i do think that you know in a, in a lot of the versions and definitely in this this 2003 version you know peter pan does come across as heartless because he's he's because he forgets everything all the time he can't possibly understand consequences of his actions and so even when he's like, oh, yeah, like I cut off Hook's hand and fed it to the crocodile, there's no feeling like there's not really malice behind that. That's just what you do when you're fighting a pirate. Like it's not, you know, like for Peter, these are all games. And it's almost like Hook is like 
chained to this role for all eternity just because of like his position within Neverland as a whole. Um, which, you know, I think is actually really well played up by Dustin Hoffman in Hook because he is just tired of doing this. Uh, like, you really feel like he has been fighting Peter Pan for generations, you know, until Peter eventually leaves ne- ne- Neverland before that movie begins. And, like, you know, he Hook is titled Hook in part because it is about Captain Hook trying to finally gain catharsis and some sort of you know mythical final victory over peter pan but what's interesting about hook in that version is that he doesn't want the adult peter pan like when they bring him back he actually says this isn't peter like you did you brought back the wrong person and then when he realizes that it's peter grown up he's like well it's not fun like if he's just like this right no Um, and so it is it is interesting that for Hook, even, it is also sort of a sometimes I win, sometimes you win, we do this all tomorrow, right? And and that plays mm-hmm. up the the real childhood fantasy. Like, we could talk about Captain Hook as a metaphor, but also there is a level on which Hook just works as a childhood antagonist um, in terms of, like, I want to play pirates today. Like, let me think of the worst pirate villain that I could play with, except for he's actualized as a character. And so it it is interesting that in some ways he functions as this like metaphorical archetype, but in other ways he is stuck in this like game that he can't like get out of either. Yeah. I've definitely read a lot of uh, books where it's like, Oh, he's trapped there. He can't leave. He's stuck in this, you know, circle in this game forever so (laughs) i think that and i haven't said this outright but i guess i'll say it now uh i watched the lost girls and i kept going i don't know what is happening (laughs) and then i'd watch another like 20 minutes and i'd go i really don't know what's happening and i kind of finished it and went yeah i still don't know what happened in that movie (laughs) Um, and, and part of that is that essentially it's, it's dealing with the like mental health problems of these, you know, generations of darling women who are being used and abused by the Neverland men. And it kind of, it's way of depicting Peter and Hook, they're not even rivals. They never actually meet in the entire story. All you see is how they each damage Wendy. So basically, Peter is the, I mean, he's the child, but he, he's the man-child. He is the, you know, guy who is swoon-worthy and will love-bomb you, and it feels so good. And then he'll just forget about you for, you know, 15 years. And then be mad that you're, you know, upset with that. Um... And in contrast, Hook is kind of sexy, but also absolutely willing to assault you and take you against your will. And so it becomes this idea that, like, all men are either a Hook or a Peter, and they all break women. They all suck. <laughs> we, need, we need more Smees in yes! the world. Yes! Thank you! Yes. Smee is okay. the best character! Smee supremacy. <laughs> You know, I did not even put Smee on my list, but I should have. And <laughs> oh, I'm sure we will talk about him more. <laughs> I think that part of what makes Captain Hook work is that, you know, we all, 
in writing and in storytelling in general, you always talk about like the best antagonist has their own world. They don't just exist to fight the main hero. And while Hook in many ways does just exist to fight Peter, he also does have his own weird little microcosm. Because he has Smee, who is constantly ruining everything. Um, He's doing his best. So he has a minor antagonist there. <laughs> I... Is he, though? He is! I he feel is. like he's... <laughs> but then, the other side of it, which Ryan and I talked about in our, you know, Disney Peter Pan uh, podcast, is that Hook's ultimate opponent, at some points, is not Peter Pan, it is the crocodile. And of course, Once Upon a Time went all in on that. They're like, crocodile yeah. everything. But most of the adaptations that I've seen, the crocodile doesn't exist. Uh, it gets eliminated because they want Peter and Hook to be kind of the ultimate confrontation. So I think it's kind of interesting to see how Hook's complexity changes with these different figures around him, Smee and the crocodile and the other pirates that almost never get names or personalities. And just how all of those pieces kind of fit together in the good, bad, insane, pathetic, sexy... Uh, mashup that is Captain Hook. First of all, I have to say, was there an antagonist role that they didn't have Robert Carlyle play in Once Upon a Time? <laughs> oh, I'm sure he played like 20, but to be fair, you also, if if you were related to Robert Carlyle's character, Rumpelstiltskin, or to Lana Perea's uh, Evil Queen, uh, if you're related to either of them, you could be any fairy tale villain as well. That's true. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Yeah, I I am a Smee fan. I do think that Smee is doing his best. He's he's like he's trying to take care of Captain Hook, and Captain Hook is not someone who makes taking care of him easy. Um, and so, you know, I I do think that he does bumble around, um, but he's very sweet and at the same time. And usually, when we see him in adaptations, um, it's not that he like wants to help the children or Peter. It's that he sort of ends up doing it anyway, because he has morals, I guess. Um, yeah. And so like you, you just like end up like he, he'll do something nice for them or something. That's definitely true in um, Peter Pan and Wendy, who, where he's played by um, Jim Gaffigan of all people who does a great job. I'm trying to remember who plays him in hook. Bob Hoskins. That's right. Oh, yes. Bob Hoskins. Um, who is also great. And so, you know, it. he's probably the most memorable pirate. Um, I can't think. I don't think. I don't think any of the other ones have names because they die so often. I'm not even sure, like, Hook knows all of their names, to be completely honest with you, which is sort of a reflection of Peter and the Lost Boys in some ways as well. But, yeah, I think he's sort of surrounded by people that he doesn't mind killing, except for Smee, who survives because he's sweet and useful. Yes, me in the 2003 version is played by Richard Briers, who is a, I'm going to say, legendary English character actor. Um, it's really hard to tell with English character actors because the way that their TV seasons work, like he's been on literally a million things. And so I assume that means he's legendary. <laughs> he he was in four Kenneth Branagh Shakespeare adaptations, too, which I think grants him some amount of status. Um you know he's got he's got letters after his name too, so I guess that that probably means something. But the 
you know, th this adaptation actually does at least name some of the other pirates because uh, Wendy, uh, at the beginning, when they're in the nursery, is naming different pirates with different characteristics. Like, one has tattoos all over his body. Um, one has backwards hands. I could tell you most of their names um, just from memory because I am filled with useless information. <laughs> Please share. All right, let's see. There's Starkey, Bill Jukes, Checo, Alf Mason, and Noodler is the one with his <laughs> backwards. I forgot about Noodler. <laughs> it's a great name. It is a great but but that that connection where you know like Wendy is essentially like in her mind she is inventing pirate characters and then those all turn out to be real people in Neverland or real pirates in Neverland and I guess just because I've seen the uh, Argyle trailer like a hundred <laughs> times in the past like two months all I could think about is like what is the the like cause cause and effect relationship like is like Wendy in her imagination actually tapping into Neverland. And so she is like, you know, like when she dreams, she's getting like real Neverland information or is it the other way around? And like the, you know, Neverland is somehow influenced or was a product of like her imagination and just, just the specificity of like, not just like, Oh, well, Captain Hook is like, is this like character that like kids know of and they sort of like play games with him or whatever. But, like, being able to name, like, specific crew members with specific traits, like I said, and, and the Argyle trailer, which just a, is about a, a writer who is writing spy novels, and apparently those spy novels are predicting the present or accurately describing real spy things that are happening in the world. I do have a question for you, Ryan, about Hook, now that I've remembered. Yes. Um, it is pirate-related. I'm not going to say that her appearance in Hook is her best performance. But is it Glenn Close's best cameo? Ooh. Yeah, it's I, like I think so. It's like a very because... silly but great cameo as a pirate who gets locked yeah. in a chest. Yeah. Uh, the boobah. Yeah, <laughs> the boobah. <laughs> <laughs> I do also get the impression that in Hook, uh, they really do a good job of emphasizing that the pirates have been there so long that they've sort of been warped by the whimsy of Neverland. <laughs> Like, like this was this is not how these people would behave if they were like on the open seas pillaging, but because they've been like they even have their own town. They're not even like on the ship anymore, necessarily. It's sort of docked next to like pirate village. They have their own prostitutes. Yeah, exactly. Which was something I was not <laughs> expecting in uh, in this movie. I will say that one thing that was kind of really interesting in the novel is that there's this whole, like, moment where, like, I think Pan is, like, in the cabin, and so Hook sends somebody to get him, and they just, like, keep hearing, like, oh, that's the sound of somebody dying. And Hook's like, how about you go in there now? And they're like, um, yeah. I, I, should I? Like, why? And, and they do anyway, and I'll just... Peter basically just plucks them all off one by one, and it is very clear that, like, they are being murdered because in the book, like, people die. People die a lot. It's also oh, implied yeah. <laughs> that Peter just kills the Lost Boys whenever he gets bored of them. So that's that's its own thing. I just, I think there's definitely this, like, anonymity 
to the pirates and the Lost Boys that, like, they are just the victims of Neverland and its, you know, chaotic leaders. Which sounds very much like something a child, like a story a child would tell, right? Like, and then this guy died this gruesome death, but I'm not going to name him because, like, he died, so why do we care? Yeah. But, like, it Neverland to me is very interesting because, like, the Disney version also kind of has that darkness to Neverland in it um, because you have, like, the mermaids trying to drown Wendy, for instance, which the mermaids help Peter and Hook, and they're very, very attractive mermaids, um, I have to say. was also not expecting that. But the interesting thing to me about Neverland is the way in which it's sort of idealized in pop culture as this, like, child paradise when it's more like an underworld fairyland where, like, if you don't follow the rules, you will die. And, like, it is permanent and it does not care if you're a child or an adult. And so it, it is it's very interesting to me the ways in which Neverland and Peter Pan as a character are almost closer to, like, the old types of fairies um, than they are to, like, more modern children's stories. Um, because they they do they do have like a certain cruelty to them, but it's not a malicious cruelty. It's just a this is just how things are. Yeah, I think there's a lot of push pull, especially in the adaptations of trying to figure out how how much menace and how much darkness to bring into it. Like in the 2003 Peter Pan, like Peter himself is kind of the darkest element of it, um, at least for me while watching it, because he has that that streak of he is clearly attracted to Wendy on some level, doesn't really understand what that is or what that means. Um, and, you know, again, because they sort of play up his, you know, forgetfulness and his sense of his almost like amorality of just not even having a concept of right or wrong, really, other than like whatever the rules of Neverland are, you know, he's the darkest thing about it. Like I never felt like, you know, um, Wendy or John or Michael were ever truly in danger in Neverland, even when they're like falling off of clouds, <laughs> you know, down to uh, like into the woods. Like there's no sense that like, oh, if they if they land, they're going to like they're going to die. Like there's no sense of a lot of death or whatever in, in that, at least in that version for the darling children. Because they're the main characters. They're named. <laughs> so that are important in Neverland. Uh, circling back to Hook cameos, by the way, um, there are a lot of cameos in Hook. So other pirates are the musicians uh, David Crosby and Jimmy Buffett. And then uh, Tony Burton, who was a boxer, who also was uh, played a role in some of the Rocky movies, is also a, a pirate. And then my, my personal favorite non-Glenn Close cameo in Hook is actually uh, George Lucas and Carrie Fisher play a couple sprinkled with pixie dust um, towards the end of the movie, um, which is just given their sort of like uh, given given the history of George Lucas and Carrie Fisher's uh, relationship with each other is just a very funny thing that they that they would do this for their friend Steven Spielberg and you know show up on on set and, and kind of hang out and uh, Carrie Fisher. I don't know if she worked on the Hook script, but she did a lot of like uncredited rewrites on a lot of Spielberg and Lucas movies over the years. I will say that I found this useful last time. I'm going to do a couple just quick rapid fires. I have a list of the main movies, TV shows, etc. that we've been talking about here. 
And I'm just going to rapid fire. I'm going to say them in order. Uh, and I want you to tell me, is Captain Hook scary, silly, sexy, or multiple? So starting with the Disney one, I know that when they were designing it, they were trying to figure out the right balance of silly and scary. And I think they, they do have both of those. But I would definitely not call like 1950 Disney hook sexy. Is that, can we agree on that? I feel like this is a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) This is like a Rorschach test. Like, do you find this sexy? I I don't know. I'm not cartoon kink shaming or anything. (laughs) Listen, listen, I I just think that Hans Conrad has a very sexy voice, even though it's highly characterized for the part. Like, I don't know. There's just something nice about it. (laughs) Okay. So all of the above for Disney, at least in some cases? Yes. Just a sprinkle of sexy, but like more, more of the other two than that. So I would say, I would say the, Real quick, I would say the animated hook is more in in order is uh, silly, sexy, and then scary. I don't I don't think the I, I, he's so silly that I don't think he's, he's really not really all that scary, scary until the last act. Villain. Like he's he I becomes a little bit yeah. more scary. Like, but yeah, mostly yeah. he's just kind of bumbling. Okay, so what about the musical version? Is hook uh, silly, scary, sexy, or some combination? I'm going to say some combination. There's definitely parts that are I probably would say more silly just because it's a musical. Uh, it's super, super campy. There's definitely, they definitely go for a more lighthearted kind of a thing. There's a scene specifically that they wrote for the musical. Peter is hiding and like imitating Hook's voice. You know, he asks him, are, you know, do you, are you an animal mineral vegetable and you know he's like do you have another voice and peter pretends i say pretends in quotations because it's historically played by uh, a female actor uh to be a a beautiful lady (laughs) so there's this whole song of seduction oh my mysterious lady show you show me your face and and it's just it's very um looney tunes you know like bugs bunny and drag kind of feeling to it and that is just hilarious and there's a lot of good back and forth between like hook and the pirate crew it's just it's very so i definitely say silly silly more than anything else but you know everybody's got their different tastes as far as as sexy goes um i wouldn't say i probably more towards the end a little bit just because you know he, he was going to make all of the children walk the plank, except for Wendy, who they were going to keep for their own mother. But yeah, th- there was no um, offering like, oh, you can join the crew if you want. Nope, he was just going to murder them kids. So <laughs> a little bit of everything, but like in that in that order. Then we get up to, we skip from the 60s to the 90s, uh, which is our biggest jump on here, because we keep talking about Hook. Um, so... The movie hook. Scary, silly, sexy, question mark. I'm actually going to put scary first if we're ranking things, because while Mm -hmm. Dustin Hoffman has a very comedic performance in this, the way that hook is introduced in this film is terrifying. Like the when you have uh, Peter and uh, what's his wife's name? Uh, Mora. Yeah, Mora. Mm -hmm. 
um, when you have Peter and Moira running into the house and then you have that, like the mark of like the hook on the wall yep. and like, you know, the, the paper basically like I have your children come get them. Like that's terrifying. Um, and I'm pretty sure actually thinking about it now, if I saw this as a child and I'm pretty sure I only saw it like once or twice, one of the reasons I probably never revisited it was that part because I was like terrified of being kidnapped as a child. So like that, like in and of itself would have like scared me. Mm-hmm. But Dustin Hoffman is one of my favorite performances of this character, not just because as Ryan pointed out, it is a, complete transformation of the character, but also because he's just so funny. Um, And in in a lot of ways, you do feel for him, like kind of being stuck playing this role. So I would definitely say um, equal parts scary and silly, but I would definitely say that he ramps up the scariness factor quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, no, I I think that's a, a perfectly good assessment. And I feel like as a kid... Part of what makes Hook scary is is one that kidnapping stuff is actually genuinely uh, leaning into yeah, horror. Yeah, I felt like I was bit. in a different movie for um, a second. <laughs> I do think, like, even as a kid, the the sort of existential uh, crisis that Hook is going through is scary because you're like, you know, like when you're a kid, you're like, adults shouldn't be questioning. <laughs> <laughs> their role in the universe <laughs> like <laughs> you know like they're yeah yeah you know you're like you're like i hope my parents don't think about <laughs> that way and like he's you know he he is very much talking to jack and i forget the the sister's name but you know he's very much talking to peter pan's kids about like you know your parents have horrible eyes oh yeah they had so much more fun before you were there (laughs) maggie doesn't believe it and maggie maggie might be like the cutest child award of this entire project i'm just gonna throw that out there maggie's adorable i do think and we'll go back to the quote unquote rapid fire in, in a second i do think it's interesting that a lot of the sequels have hook being the kidnapper because, I mean, yes, he does in the original source material, but the original kidnapping of the Darlings is done by Peter. Right. But but we've gradually gone, no, Pete, Peter takes them for magic, Hook takes them mm. for death. But, <laughs> mm, the, those lines is are a bit blurry. <laughs> or existential crises, as mm. the case may be. <laughs> yes. Okay, so that takes us to uh, Return to Neverland. There's definitely some more scary, I think, because, I mean, he kidnaps Jane. She falls asleep by the windowsill and, like, you see the hook go into the window, open the latch, and just, like, throw her in a bag. That's horrifying. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, one word I didn't say before that I probably should have is clever. I think that... Uh, you know, Return to Neverland plays into the cleverness of Hook a little bit more than I would say, strictly speaking, scary, because he convinces Jane to to betray uh, the Lost Boys. And she she doesn't. She has a change of heart. But, you know, between the original Disney movie and this sequel, like Hook is really good at tricking people into thinking what he wants them to think and that Peter should be betrayed. So I'll say like scary and, and clever. And then there's definitely silly moments, but uh, they mostly happen 
either visually or just because Smee is a bumbling idiot and makes Hook a bumbling idiot. But I will say the best silly part of Return to Neverland is that instead of the crocodile, there's a kraken that Hook is petrified of. And there is a great, like, gag of Peter calling Hook a codfish and then the kraken actually viewing Hook and all the other pirates as fish flailing in boats and stuff. So there's definitely there's definitely some silly... But I would say that he he is still very much not supposed to be sexy. It's actually kind of the opposite because he shows a picture of his mother to Wendy. Oh, yeah. And it's just basically him in drag. And it's very explicitly <laughs> supposed to be like, oh, my God, how bad of a woman would Captain Hook be? Um, so I would say that Disney is still very reluctant to call Captain Hook sexy despite the fact that they approved Colin O'Donoghue by the time we get to Once Upon a Time. But before we get there, uh, 2003. Sexy. Uh, very <laughs> sexy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I was going to say, I think uh, Jason Isaac's hook is maybe the most balanced between the three. Um, like, to me, he feels roughly equal parts um, sexy, silly, and scary. Maybe the le- maybe he's the least silly uh, by compar- just by comparison for all the ones that we've talked about, but you know he definitely brings the sexiness and definitely brings uh, the the scariness. Like there really is malice there. Even again, even though like you know none of our main characters seem like they're really in all that much jeopardy. You know, I especially starting with Wendy's description about like his eyes turning red and all, like they really build up the scariness of Hook. Right from the beginning. In the, I kind of feel one. like that's Jason Isaac's specialty, though. Scary, sexy. Like, yeah. that kind of seems to be a through line with a lot of the characters that he plays. <laughs> so good casting on their part. Yeah, like his Star Trek character that I'm still not sure if he's from the Mirror <laughs> Universe or not. Or Yeah, you're just like, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> yep, I, I can't remember exactly how old I was when the 2003... Peter Pan came out, but um, I remember like a, a bunch of you know the girls like you know going to a sleepover and watching this, and everybody fawning over Peter Pan, which you know he was adorable. But I was like, ah, uh, <laughs> Captain Hook, no, yeah, no, Captain Hook definitely in the two thousand three was definitely a um, a revelation. That was where it was at. <laughs> I do think in general, there there's a trend, especially with like Disney villains of like oh did you want to be a disney princess or a disney villain and that also leans into did you want peter or did you want (laughs) like there there's a preference that you developed early on there okay well that takes us to once upon a time which i think can very soundly be said sexy Sexy. i don't even know if scary is really in the ballpark because once upon a time once upon a time i'm gonna be honest is not that scary <laughs> like just in no. general um and so like i would definitely say sexy is the predominant trait of hook uh the the show states that hook has sexually assaulted people so there is there is a creep level but it's not a scare mm-hmm. level with him um he gets and beat up a lot the, he does <laughs> as the show goes on he gets funnier because he keeps getting beat up and because he doesn't know modern technology. 
I still remember the heyday of uh, Captain Floor Shippers, which I loved. Uh, yes. Which was the relationship between Captain Hook and the floor he kept being flung into. <laughs> so definitely some silly there, but I think still sexy is definitely his predominant uh, trait. Well, especially because of the ship between him and Emma Swan, um, which when when they figured that out, it became like... Well, when when the writers figured out that was what everyone wanted, everyone wanted, it be, he became a romantic interest more than a villain. Yeah, and and then they just forgot about half the stuff that they'd been setting up in the first two and a half seasons. Uh, I I have strong thoughts on Once Upon a Time, but um, mm. yeah, I I think that he's so. I mean, they went for sexy. And I liked that he he had a flirtationship with everyone, which worked really well. Yeah. Once once he became more monogamous, it got a little less effective. And that's when I think they fell more into the slapstick, silly side of Hook. Because they couldn't have him flirt with everyone because he was in a committed relationship. With Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> Or David. I, I, I mean, there was definitely some Prince Charming hook stuff. There were some things that were going on, like, you know, like the, the rivalry, you know, like it was that was yeah. honestly like long, long game. Very interesting, you know. I mean, yeah, in in season seven, they raise a child together. Like, I, I think the show got <laughs> there eventually. But um, OK, now we jump to 2022, The Lost Girls. He is definitely a malicious force. Uh, there is no silly. There is creepy and terrifying. Hook is introduced with uh, Wendy is laying in a pool just like celebrating the joy of Neverland and then just has a hook to the throat. Again, the sexual assault elements are definitely um, prevalent. But it especially gets effective on the creepy front because um, essentially throughout Wendy's life, she sees like visions of Hook when she's at her lowest. And it's 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 a lot of metaphors about trauma and some of it works and some of it doesn't. But there's a really good moment where like Wendy basically says she doesn't care about him anymore. And so he says, fine, I'll go to your daughter instead. All young girls know Captain Hook. And it's probably the most chilling line in the entire movie because it draws on that idea that, like, all young women are hurt by a man in some way. Uh, so definitely, like, scary sinister is definitely the vibe for Hook. He, he has no other levels in uh, The Lost Girls. Uh, and that takes us to Peter Pan and Wendy. I mean, I would say Jude Law, very sexy, somewhat scary, um, but I would say more tragic um, than okay. than anything else because there is like the storyline, kind of like um, the film that Ryan was describing. One of the things that Wendy discovers is that Hook and Peter were friends at one point, that um, before Hook grew up, he was a lost boy, um, and then he grew up wrong is what, how Peter um, describes it. Um, and so 
there is a lot of tragedy and the story kind of unfolds about their friendship where then Hook tells her like, oh, well, it's because he banished me from the island that I like grew up because I missed my mother and like how horrible is that? And so like there is a lot of tragedy in it. There is catharsis at the end um, between Peter and Hook. Um, but Hook does have some of the best lines, and Jude Law does a pretty good job of balancing all those. There are some silly moments as well. There's a particularly funny moment where he destroys a clock um, because of the no clock rule, um, which is rule number 37 of his list of rules. It, it gets very funny um, at parts. So, um, but yeah, I would definitely say his he is sexy, he is a little scary, he's a little silly, but mostly I would say the vibe is tragic, I think, um, for this particular Hook. Um. Ryan, I'm sorry. I skipped Pan. Uh, let's <laughs> go back to that one real it's, quick. It is very, in your defense, <laughs> Pan is very skippable. Um, but uh, Hook here is played by Garrett Hedlund, and I would definitely say sexy and silly, if only because there's something about Garrett Hedlund I find inherently silly. Um, but he just has this, like, I don't know, his his Texas accent just feels very out of place in a British story to me even if like it's perfectly fine if the character is american like that that all makes sense but um and i guess apologies to texas and minnesota because apparently garrett <laughs> headland is from minnesota <laughs> if we're gonna talk about hook we've got to talk about how pan is presented so i'm also gonna just because we've talked around it a lot i'm also gonna go through start to finish Let's talk about how Pan is represented. What what words would we say? Uh, like, good, evil, chaotic. What what other words can we come up with for Peter Pan in general? I guess. I'd say magical, especially if you're considering the musical version. You know, like um, it's just like it's a lot of like I said, camp, but it's a lot of like stage magic and. Um, at least at least in that version it's you don't get a sense of malice at all uh if anything it's that you know like the version of peter pan that mary martin is playing is very much um i would say like uh, a 5 year old boy like it's before they're to the point where they're like oh girls are icky but it's you know it's very it's innocent. It's it, a little bit selfish. It's full of uh, self-importance. There's a, a scene where Wendy wants to know, she's like, you know, what are your feelings for me? And his answer is, oh, that of a devoted son. And it's like, that's not the answer that she wanted to hear. And, and he's just like, Tinkerbell asked me the same question. <laughs> and she also got kind of annoyed with me, but I don't know why. But it's like, it's you know, it's that very, very young sort of child instead of, I, f I feel like with the Disney version, he's maybe a bit older, maybe like 11 or 12, kind of like pushing towards like on the verge of being at the age where you're starting to get those kind of feelings. But it's, you know, so there's definitely a, you know, differing maturity level, I think across the board, because it's like, you don't know like if it's going to be really really young peter pan then it's you know like more more towards like a little little boy uh compared to like uh you know a preteen 
I was going to say, I, um, what's really interesting to me is we've talked a little bit about Hook as a metaphor, um, but really Peter Pan is a metaphor, right? Like the whole point of Peter Pan is that he's the child who doesn't grow up. And so he's supposed to represent like youthfulness and innocence and like all those romantic ideas of, um, you know, children. Um, but he's also drawing on like, um, I mean, his name is Peter Pan. He's drawing on like Greek mythological notions as well. And so there's a lot of nature-like symbolism and stuff with him. Um, but what I think is interesting about Hook is the way that they sort of use that um, to represent Peter, who Peter Banning is his name as an adult, like him returning to his childhood, like returning to like that sense of innocence and that sense of playfulness and self. Um, because in a very 90s, I mean, Hook is a very 90s movie. And I mean that like in a complimentary way. It, it definitely has that, you know, he's a workaholic and his like, he's a horrible father and like, uh, you know, and really to like save his family, um, he has to return to the self that he was, you know, as a child. Um, and, and then by save his family, I don't mean just literally, I mean, also like figuratively as well, um, because there is like the sense that he's losing his relationship, especially with Jack, his, his eldest son. Also, I just have to say this movie, just watching this movie made me really miss Robin Williams a lot. Like, I, you know, just like watching him do his thing on screen is just always so delightful. And I think he's the perfect casting choice for this because he's able to balance both roles that you have to play, both the like older workaholic, like almost the antithesis of what Peter Pan is. Um, and then the when he finally like reconnects with that part of himself you know he's joyful and playful and silly and um i think that he's just doing some really good work here as well um but we don't really get to, i mean we see some flashbacks him as a child but we don't actually get to see him as like the peter pan eternal child because he did decide to grow up in this version of the story and marry um wendy's granddaughter mora um wendy is in this she's just very old um and which is another interesting aspect of it but um, but it is interesting that we do see the child version. It's just through that lens of the adult version. Okay. So I think the question that I'm going to frame out of this is for each movie or uh, TV show or play, what element of childhood does this version's Peter Pan most capture? Um. So I think 1950 Disney, it's supposed to be the magic of childhood. Uh, would y'all agree with that? Like, it's it's the idea that anything is possible. Imagination and magic. That kind of element of childhood, I think, is what Disney was really trying to pull out. Yeah, I think that and and play always comes to mind for me with that with that version of Peter Pan. Like, every everything is a game, you know, the... Um, the stuff with Tiger Lily, the stuff with Hook, like everything is a game to him and everything is 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 play and, um, you know, stories and, and everything. So, yeah, I, I would definitely say um, that that imagination that comes along with play. What about turning to the musical? Uh, Victoria, I know you talked a lot about the magic of it, but um, like, is there a specific angle of childhood you feel like they really tried to represent? joy you know like jubilance um you've got that wonderful you know introductory song that peter pan sings when wendy you know sews his shadow on i've got a crow 
And it's just, you know, it's that feeling of, you know, something good happens and you may or may not have had anything to do with it, but like you just, you feel fantastic and uh, unstoppable. So, I, I mean, I feel like that's throughout, you know, like they overcome all of the obstacles and then even, you know, going back home to the nursery, there's still that, that feeling that, you know, like even after Wendy grows up and it's Jane, there's still that, you know, like new adventures on the horizon. So as we go to Hook, I think that we're still seeing kind of the continuation of this. But are there any other elements other than the the joy and the magic of it all uh, that you guys want to point out? I mean, I think going back to play again, um, there's so many playful elements. I mean, and that sort again, that like we discussed before, that sort of forms the basis of the relationship between Hook and Peter, even though it's like a toxic one where it's like we're in this game and we're stuck in this game and you can't just leave. Right. Um, And so but for the most part, like the way that the Lost Boys are trying to get him to remember who he is, is through this sense of play. It's through like, let's imagine we're eating all sorts of food. Let's have like, imagine that we're having a food fight with that food. You know, like it becomes like this exercise in trying to remember what it's like to play as a child and not to work all the time. From there, we have Return to Neverland, which I think continues this theme, but very specifically, uh, deals with messiness as play. So they they have a song, uh, these are the things that lost boys do when they're trying to turn Jane into a lost girl. And they talk about like, oh, we love to, you know, jump in mud and not change our clothes. And it's a whole thing that uh, the big like bonding moment that the lost boys and Peter do is they uh, spit on their hands and then shake, which Jane and myself uh, was always like kind of repulsed by. It's like, this is this is gross. <laughs> so specifically, it really leaned into the like gross little boy side of play. Like, I want to get dirty. I want to get messy. And I don't want anybody to tell me I have to clean up. That's what mothers are for. <laughs> like... That's very much yeah, in the book yeah. as well, I feel like. It's like, oh, the boys are just going to do messy things yes. and then get cleaned up by Wendy. <laughs> yes. Just immediately flashback to Grumpy and Snow White. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about that so much, especially with, you know, all of the different ways that it turns into let's cause like a total disaster and then... I think in the Disney movie, like, you see Wendy several times just being like, are you serious? Like, you call me a mother, but I'm just a maid here. Like, this is getting very annoying. But that's what but that's what mothers were in in late 19th century England. They were the angel in the house. They were the domestic servant. That's what they were. And so, like, it's no wonder Wendy doesn't actually want to be a mother. Like... You're basically just making yourself a slave to a bunch of children and a husband who doesn't care. Okay. <laughs> 2003 Peter Pan. Uh, what, what childhood does he capture? I think one of the things that's really interesting uh, about the casting choice is that this was the first live action theatrical movie that cast a boy as Peter Pan. And so I do think that it leans into... Uh, a more gendered version of childhood than 
maybe any other version that that we're talking about in that you know this this version of peter pan feels like he is you know not feels like he's closer to being an adolescent than being just a child like he's having these sort of confused feelings about like what does he really feel about wendy what does he really feel about tinkerbell and it there's a couple of times where he sort of is positioning himself as like well if wendy is the mother of the lost boys then that makes me the father and you know it it is leaning like i said i think it is leaning more into exploring those uh those gender roles even as how they get projected onto children you know and, and how children project those onto themselves you know in in play and it it really does all come back to that but i think um I think that's what something that makes that that adaptation a little bit distinct compared to you know makes it distinct from all the other adaptations in, in its own way. So it, it would your keyword be like puberty or? <laughs> uh... <laughs> uh, I, I think it's more. I I I would I would say my keyword would be boyishness. Okay. You yeah. know, it, it's not right. quite full on puberty because it, it really is positioning both him and Wendy as sort of like really on the cusp. Like they, you know, they're, they're taking home the permission slips, to their parents to sign off that they can watch the movie about puberty at school. But like, <laughs> you know, it, they're, they're still not actually, they haven't actually experienced <laughs> any of that yet. That says to once upon a time, my, my one word would be uh, self-centeredness. I, I know that like evil is, is kind of the go-to because he's definitely the evil version of Peter Pan. But a lot of it just goes back. He's the villain of he, that half season. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I think for him, it kind of goes back to that idea of children as heartless. That it's it's not necessarily that he just gets a thrill out of killing people. It's just that he wants what he wants. And so I think it if we're defining him as a type of child, it would be kind of the like self-centered no object permanence kind of child he just doesn't understand that other people like actually have a right to exist in the world ryan this is kind of reminding me now of um the collector from the owl house like i hadn't put those together but the collector does have that kind of peter pan yes. like doesn't understand permanence of death or like he just wants to play and he doesn't understand the consequences of what he's doing um, because he's a child. Right. I, and yeah. And doesn't understand the difference between games and real life consequences. So what about the, the prequel uh, when we turn to 2015's pan, the 2015 version of Peter Pan is really trying to map him on to like, I would almost say like a, like a younger skewing YA hero. Um, in the sense that like he has all the trappings of Peter Pan, but he's like, you know, he's going on a hero's journey in a way that fundamentally doesn't make sense with what Peter Pan is as a, a metaphor or a symbol or like what he means to the original story. Like it really is him and Hook like, you know, we're liberating the the, the boys from Blackbeard and we're, you know, we're we're doing the and it just it doesn't he doesn't feel you know, like I said, he's got all the markings of of Peter Pan in terms of you know he learns how to fly and 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 do all these things, but it, it really feels like that sort of YA hero's journey. Also, just kind of goes on the same line as some of the Hook stuff of like 
we very much got like the morally gray YA like hot guy just kind of mapped onto a bunch of movies, especially as we went into like the 2010s where we just everyone had to be that kind of like sexy because they're not a hundred percent uh good or bad or or stable or chaotic they're always just kind of on the edge there let's see uh the lost girls like i said earlier like peter he just like he's he's very possessive is is what i'll say so in the lost girls it's it's a thing that is told to the young girls like okay someday a boy will come find you and they like play out the script of it every time but peter like Peter owns these girls, uh, more or less. Uh, from the moment they're born, they will be his playmate. And he makes all of them pr promise uh, that they'll never grow up. Uh, so he's very possessive. He wants everything to be, like, his plaything and do what he tells them to. And then what about uh, Peter Pan and Wendy? So, uh, Peter Pan, and this is played by Alexander Maloney, um, who has done mostly voice work for, for Disney, so this is really his first, like, starring live-action role. It's interesting because this in this movie, and I'd be interested to hear what Ryan thinks as well, Wendy is really the main character of the movie, not Peter Pan, um, which is a very interesting choice. But I would say, insofar as Peter is, I would... I almost want to say he does actually have some of the qualities of he does have some of the more negative qualities that we've been talking about in terms of just kind of thoughtlessness and like selfishness, but they're not as like turned up as they are in say once upon a time or something like that. It's more like he really messed up like with hook and he kind of knows that he messed up, but he doesn't want to admit it. Um, and so he, you know, he's doing that child thing where it like if I don't talk about it and if I just like keep going as everything always has been, then maybe it will not have happened um, or maybe it, it will not. Um, so if, if he if he can keep this game going between him and Hook, then Hook is the villain and he's the hero. And this is something that comes up a lot in the film, right? Because there's even a moment where Wendy's like, well, what happens if you don't win once? And uh, and the last they're called the Lost Boys, but they're really the Lost Children um, because there are girls in there. And there's a great moment where uh, Wendy's like, but you're not all boys. And they're like, so? And she's like, I guess it doesn't really matter. And that's like literally like the end of that conversation. And it's great. Um, but all the Lost Children are just kind of like, yeah, what does happen if you lose stuff? Um, and so like, you know, it... It's a really interesting arc for Peter because he does kind of have to learn to take accountability for his actions. But at the same time, at the end of the film, you know, all, he, you know, everyone returns to the Darling House, including all of the lost children. And he's still the one who's like, nope, I'm not ready to go grow up. Bye. Um, and so there is still this sense that Wendy has to grow up because biologically women have to grow up, right? Because they have to go through puberty and have children and become mothers because that's what they're for um, in, in the Peter Pan Wendy universe of the late 19th century. But boys don't have to. They don't have to. Um, they can be children as long as they want. And honestly, there are no consequences. 
Um, and so while this movie, I think, does a really good job of exploring, like, what happens if Peter actually has to take a- accountability for creating Hook or, you know, being involved in this relationship with Hook, it still wants Peter Pan to be Peter Pan, right? <laughs> it still wants him to, like, run away and be, like, you know, this crazy little boy who doesn't have to, like, ever account for anything. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good read on it. I mean, it's been eight months or so since I since I saw it. Um and I, I just sort of remember thinking that, like, you know, I, I think it's a good characterization of Peter Pan, but it felt to me like David Lowry was the least interested in Peter Pan as a character compared to Wendy and Hook and Tiger Lily. Yeah. And Tiger Lily, even, because um, Tiger Lily actually saves Peter's life. Um, like, she's the one who, like, gets him to the final climactic sequence. Um, so, yeah, it is... He is more interested in those other characters, I think. Peter almost serves as like a um, like a touchstone. Like he's the most recognizable of the original characters, but he's more there for the other characters to play off of. Yeah, and he connects all the characters together. Um, so he is like the central figure of the story almost more than he is a character. But the stuff that is there, you know, especially around his sort of as close as Peter Pan can ever get to the concept of regret. Um, you know, I, I do think it plays with that in an interesting way. He apologizes to hook at the end and which is not something I think any other Peter Pan would ever do. No. (laughs) So I think that, you know, as, as you were saying, um, Tessa, one of the things that's so kind of integral to the Peter Pan story is we call it Peter Pan, but J.M. Barry called it Peter Pan and Wendy, and it's taken us until this year to call it Peter Pan and Wendy again. So, of course, let's talk about Wendy. You know, all of these movies present her or her, you know, replacement, uh, as some of the sequels do, in, you know, different ways. Sometimes she's the traditional you know, mother figure, sometimes she rebels against that, and sometimes it's just a little bit more complex than that. So I guess uh, my question when it comes to Wendy and Wendy replacements is, in each movie, like, what version of, I guess, being a woman is Wendy supposed to be? Because, of course, there's she has the, the conflict of childhood and adulthood, too, but it's very much about what being a woman is. Um, so I think, as we've said, the Disney version very much leans into the, like, I am, I am the maid uh, and I am the nurturer. Like, I, I have no personality. I have no needs. She gets frustrated by that somewhat, but that is, like, who she wants to be. She wants to be the mother. She wants to nurture and care for people. Um, so I think that's kind of where we're starting from. Very kind of entrenched in the stereotype. So Victoria, what happens as we move towards the musical instead? She definitely still wants to um, step into that role of mother, but I was kind of surprised um, at how she sort of uh, ended up bossing Peter around because when you know he was at the window and heard the end of the story um in this case it is the Cinderella story that uh her mother was telling her 
Uh, he was going to he was going to run back immediately and tell the Lost Boys, and she kind of stopped him. Like, hey, wait, I know a lot of stories. I could tell them, you know, to you guys. And she sort of like talked him into taking her, and then also her brothers. But um, yeah, it's you know it's still very traditional, you know, motherhood role. Um, when they sing the song about building her a little house, they say, you know, oh, she's going to be our mother. She's going to make us pockets and sing to us and tell us stories. So it's still very traditional, but, you know, she only steps into the role. Uh, oh, I'll be mother, but only if Peter is father. So she kind of knows sort of how to pull the strings in a way. Yeah, I think there's... Uh, going back to the source briefly, there's always a little bit of that in Wendy. Uh, there's some good points in the book where she's able to kind of make Peter feel like an idiot, which is always fun. Um, so I, I like that that was brought out more in the musical, because I think Disney really kind of downplayed those moments. Um, so it's been a little bit since I've seen Hook. Is there a character that you guys would call our Wendy figure. Well, Wendy's in Hook. She is old, um, but she is an important character. And I I really like this version of Wendy. You'll have to remind me, um, Megan, because you've read the book a lot more recently than I have. In the book, she calls him boy, right? Like, boy, why are you crying? Isn't that like the first line to him because he's lost his shadow. So I, I really enjoyed that. This I, I had to ask because in my mind, when a, a young woman in a 19th century book calls another character boy, it's great expectations. Um, but that's like a whole different thing. Um, so like in, I really like in this, this version of Wendy because she's older, she's like a grandmother. Um, but she's also, she, she calls him boy. Um, still. And she, she definitely has that like special relationship like with him in that way but the way that peter thinks their relationship is is that she ran a home for um for orphaned children which i assume were the lost boys like coming into her house like at the end of this thing um and so in but in his mind she raised him in this house along with mora and that's who she is basically to him. So there is some really interesting play between like, she remembers him as a boy when she was a girl, but he sees her as like a mother figure, but like for real, like she actually did raise him in this. So there's some interplay there as well, but she's also the one who tells him because she's like, you really don't remember. We never talked about it, but like, you really don't do you? Um, and so that, you know, there's some very interesting conversations that they end up having, but it's hard to know whether she is actually still in love with him, like it, but it's kind of like a like a secret love or not secret, but like she knows nothing's gonna happen, but like she's like, you know, still kind of like has that like childhood fondness for him. Um, but it it is a very interesting dynamic to actually see her transition into that older role um as well. I think that definitely adds, you know, an extra layer that she, you know was able to grow up as a maternal figure to Peter more than playing the mom as she does kind of in the traditional version. 
And to a lot of people, like, I think the reason Peter and his family are in England are because she's, like, receiving an award for, like, helping orphaned children. Like, it, like she, like, dedicated her life to that, basically, after Neverland. And, you know, I really interesting. Like, it is still that traditional mother role, but it is being played with in a, like, no, like, she actually just cared about children. And, you know, that, I think, is probably a better use of it than the, like, domesticity goddess that we get in earlier versions. Yeah, and she's being recognized by, again, the Great Ormond Street Hospital uh, that does actually own the real world rights to Peter Pan. So they are, yeah, so they're they're tying it all back into, like, like Hook does a very, does one of those things where it's like, oh, what if this story was real? And, like, let's play with the real world status of it. But then also, you know, like, there's a little bit of metafiction in, in Hook that I... In I Kensington like. Garden. Yeah, like that statue of Peter Pan um, that was this in This is it. jumping ahead, but uh, The Lost Girls also references the Great Ormond Street Hospital as a cause that was very dear to the original Wendy's heart. So I do like that they keep kind of tying that one back in there. Return to Neverland. We do see Wendy... Uh, she's probably 30s-ish, and she is very much still a dreamer. Like, she wants to delight her children with stories of magic and adventure. Uh, but Jane is is our heroine, and she is practical to a fault. Uh, it's her little brother's birthday, and she literally was out in the streets in danger of being bombed to get him a, a birthday present. And everyone's like, oh, that's going to be super sweet. And it's socks, but not just any socks, two big socks so that he can grow into them. Um, <laughs> so she's, you know, she's kind of annoyingly practical. Uh, she goes to Neverland and Peter says, oh, she'll be our mother and she'll tell us stories. And she just goes like, um, I'm not, I'm not good at that. It's not the kind of mother that I would be. Right. <laughs> like, she, she definitely has a nurturing side. You know, she really wants to care for her little brother and the youngest of the lost boys she gets very attached to because he reminds her of her little brother. Uh, so she has the nurturing, but more of a like, I will practically take care of you. Not the, I will take care of your, like, dreams and soul. Um, I will say, one of my favorite parts of that, though, is that the movie is cool with it. Uh, so she says, oh, I'm not very good at telling stories. And one of the Lost Boys says, that's okay, we're not good at listening anyway. Which is brilliant. Uh, because it very quickly <laughs> goes, okay, so she doesn't have to fit. <laughs> The shoes yeah. that her mother left and she can have her own relationship with them uh so while she is nurturing she gets to be the first lost girl and she gets to be more of an equal instead of a you know servant nurturer role um so we're definitely getting more of the like kind of even footing by the time we get there um, what about, uh, 2003's Peter Pan? Yeah, I feel like maybe, you know, beyond, again, the, the, the race stuff that we talked about, uh, earlier in the episode, I feel like Wendy is where the, this adaptation is sort of doing most of its, like, 
updating to fit with present day values. Um, you know, and, and they're not really changing the text, but it's it's like emphasizing, you know, that aspect of Wendy uh, that I was talking about before, where like, you know, she's scared of adulthood because of what it means for her in, in this world. And really what she's looking for is a different sort of, she's trying to find her own path. And I think, you know, giving her a lot more, you know, autonomy and, you know, it, because in, in, in the Disney version, at least, like, she's, like, very excited to get to Neverland because she wants to do all these things. And then she's like, oh, well, I'm just a mother here. Like, there's no difference between being here and being at home because the expectations on me are basically the same. And here she gets to actually taste some of that freedom, especially with the pirates. Like, the Lost Boys really do want, you know, they make her the house with the chimney. And, you know, it's not quite as um, servant-oriented as the more traditional versions but it is still closer to you know putting you in this very mother-like role whereas again her time with her the house is developed in such too. a way where she so. yes you know is i had forgotten about that actually until adventure. you that you mentioned the 2003 because i i don't yeah. think that as far as i know i don't know if there's a lot of other adaptations that actually specifically do the house yeah i think most of them she just moves in with whatever hideout the Lost Boys are in. So that moves us to Once Upon a Time, where Wendy is not super... She she has a role to play that matters, but that role is mostly being a vessel for other characters. So she, she rescues uh, Bay and kind of is like, no child should be starving on the street, which is great. And then she's a hostage. And I think that's basically all we ever learn about her. That she doesn't think people should starve to death <laughs> and that she is easily victimized. <laughs> Which is awful. But yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. Is there anything else to her character in Once Upon a Time? They just weren't very interested in Wendy in that story. They were more interested in other elements of that story than Wendy. I definitely remember making a they built her a house joke when they built her a cage to put her in. <laughs> like, oh, here is her house and it's got bars. <laughs> um 2015's Pan. Is there a Wendy allegory since it's a prequel? Yeah, the, I mean, the closest that it gets is actually putting Tiger Lily in that role, even though again, she has the romance with Hook and not with uh Peter, but that's also because she's She's aged up even more than uh, than Tiger Lily is normally. So, um, you know, but it it that's as, that's about as far as it gets. There's not really a, a real analog. The Lost Girls is kind of the opposite of that uh, because the whole point is that we get four generations of Wendy characters, kind of. Um, so that's kind of like where its big depth is. So there's original Wendy, uh, who is like the grandma. And she just tells, she just says vaguely ominous things about Peter to her descendants. Like she views it as a good time. It's, it's a happy story that she tells her granddaughter. She's like, yeah, one day you'll meet a boy and he'll take you away and have magical adventures. But then once that actually happened to her granddaughter, she's like, oh, yeah, but the trauma, too, right? 
so she acknowledges it, but she's not gonna she's not gonna warn anybody about it. Then there's Jane, um, who wanted a sexual relationship with Peter. So kind of the the big mystery of it is Jane had a kid and then disappeared, and everyone's been trying to figure out what happened. And basically, she just wanted to sleep with Peter, and he did. But then he kind of was bored, and she didn't take that well. Uh, then we get Wendy, too. She has she has this super awkward line. Or, like, Peter says, oh, I'll take you and make you our mother. And she's like, well, Peter, I'm a modern sort of girl. I listen to records and like to go to a shopping mall. Okay. <laughs> Which... Was just <laughs> moms don't go to the shopping malls anymore. And then she, there are no lost boys in this movie, so she she never is a mother. Like she goes to Neverland and just like, kind of vaguely sits in cornfields. So that is weird. Uh, and then her daughter Barry is just horrifically pissed off by the idea of Peter Pan because he took her family away basically um and so she basically sees imagination as worthless she wants to live in the real world and that leads into some pretty dark discussions of depression and suicide so so that kind of plays with the different levels of like your expectations as a woman beholden to these like two male creepy figures but that's that's definitely kind of the crux of the lost girls like what who do you become when your entire identity is being a girl taken by peter pan to neverland and then of course 2023 peter pan and wendy uh tessa you said that she's basically the main character right yeah, I think that this is actually where this adaptation shines um, because David Lowry and his uh, his co-writers are doing a very good job of asking, like, what does it actually mean for Wendy to grow up? Like, what is she actually dealing with, you know, as she decides to go to Neverland? And it really is more from her perspective. It's centering both her experience as someone who is getting kicked out of the nursery. She's, she's actually about to get sent off to boarding school. That's sort of this, like she's leaving the next day on the train, basically. And she's sort of pushing back against it. You know, she's like, well, like, what if I don't want your life to her mom? Which is, you know, every parent loves to hear that. But like, also, <laughs> maybe she doesn't want that life um, because it sucks. Um, but she, you know, she gets you know taken to neverland she thinks this is great you know i'm flying and this is a wonderful adventure but then she immediately starts questioning the rules of neverland like why are we locked in this eternal conflict with hook like why are you know these things happening this way and she's really struggling a lot with her identity which i think is kind of the the whole point of this is she a child is she not and it's really um exemplified by the fact that when she learns how to fly at the beginning, um, and she's told, you know, think happy thoughts. She thinks about her childhood, like specifically playing games with her brothers and running around and, you know, that sort of carelessness of, of youth versus later on when she has to fly um, because she's being walked off the plank by Hook. And that's another Disney thing, right, where he doesn't hear the splash. 
um, because she she figured well in this version just because she figures out how to fly. She's not saved by Peter. But the thing that she's thinking of is, oh, actually, it could be good to grow up. Like, you know, there are problems with it, but like there are all these adventures that I could choose to have as an adult that I couldn't choose to have, you know, as as a child. And a large part of that is actually, funnily enough, that Tiger Lily is the one who tells her, you know, you have to decide, like, you're going to grow up anyway. You just have to decide, like, what kind of person you want to be and what you want to do with your life. And I think that's great, um, not to bring up the Bechtel test because it's, like, overused, but the fact that there is a conversation between Tiger Lily and Wendy and it's not about Peter and it's not about how jealous they both are of each other is amazing, like, in and of itself. Um, but you also get, you know, these great moments with Wendy, who is really the person who ignites the final battle, you know, by lifting the ship out of the water, basically. And he, she's also the ones that that has the most empathetic conversations with Hook. So, you know, there's there's a lot there and they do kind of like want her to be their mother. She does kind of tell a lullaby. But then when they ask, you know, for a story, She's like, I don't know, Peter, why don't you tell us a story about your friendship with Hook? I want to hear about that. So, you know, it is sort of pushing back against, like, some of those ideas as well. I think that one of the things that a lot of the Peter Pan adaptations like playing with, and it's funny because so few of them actually use the line, and yet it's such a famous line, to die would be an awfully big adventure, a lot of them really like leaning in on the no to grow up and live a life would be a good adventure. And I think in that's so many in cases as well, uh, you know, uh, that's the lost girls quotes that exact same thing. Um, it's, it's this idea that like only Wendy really understands that there is like more to life than what Peter is seeing. Um, that I think really plays out really well with kind of that juxtaposition line. So we've talked about Wendy. We've talked about uh, Tiger Lily a good bit. Uh, I don't think we've mentioned Tinkerbell. And if we have, it was very <laughs> rarely. And that is a, a true shame. So let's just do a quick run through. Did your movie have Tinkerbell? If so, like, what was she like? Does she still exist just to be jealous? That's basically her role in uh, the 1950 Disney movie. Although she's also sassy, which we <laughs> I was going to say, she's there to be sassy. She's there to be sassy and then to save Peter's life. That's pretty much it. Um, for the musical, it's um, she's literally just somebody shines a flashlight. So she's just a little ball of light and some, you know, tinkling sound effects as they shine her across the stage sometimes it's sort of a silhouetted shape so you can see kind of a fairy shaped thing but it's very much you know you have to use your imagination to kind of get an idea of you know what she's doing but um yeah she's definitely sassy she's definitely um i wouldn't say i don't know if i would say in love with peter i feel like that's sort of complicated but you definitely get that impression she wants more from him than he's willing to give. Outside of that, she's really not. Um, her world is Peter. I'm going to put it like that. Like, that's what she's there for. She really doesn't care much about anything else that's going on. Her role was very minimal in the musical. Like, um, 
she didn't tell the Lost Boys to shoot Wendy down. They sort of just did it on their own, probably just because of the practical effects and the lighting and stuff like that. I always, I always kind of like the the fact that for the vast majority of Peter Pan's history, Tinker Bell has literally just been a light in the corner of the <laughs> and <stage>. a little bell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what about Hook? So, I, infamously, Tinker Bell is played by uh, Julia Roberts in Hook. I say infamously because I think she got a lot of, I honestly, I think she got a lot of unearned flack for this role. I don't think it's her fault that this role is kind of odd because I think that's more Spielberg's fault than it is her fault, but whatever. She plays Tinkerbell in this very, she is sort of simultaneously a lost boy because she's like, you know, oh, what fun games we'll play, you know, and she's like trying to explain the rules to him and like, you know, hide him from Hook and stuff. She's also kind of the mother of the group in absence of Wendy because she's like the one that's like, she's like the one person that has a brain cell in the entire operation. So she's like the person who's trying to get them all to point in the same direction at the same time. Um, but then she's also in love with him, which feels very... It feels very, like, um, manufactured. Like, they felt like they had to have her be in love with him. And, you know, there's a moment where she, like, transforms into, like, a real girl. Like, where she's, like, full-sized or whatever. And she's like, I've always loved you. And he's like, sorry, I've got a family. And, like, that's, like, literally it. To me, that's the weakest part of this film is, honestly, the relationship between Peter and Tinkerbell. I think Julia Roberts is doing her best. (laughs) But she's just not, she doesn't really stack up against, like, the sassiness level of the other Tinks because they're asking her to play so many different roles at the same time in this character. When we look at Return to Neverland, she's similarly kind of a weak character because she's really just a plot device. So it's it's a different reason that she just kind of doesn't quite land. Um, like, she starts out jealous and then Jane says... I don't believe in fairies. And then she's just dying for most of the movie. Um, <laughs> Poor Tinkerbell. Like, it, she gets a bit of a triumphant moment in the battle with the pirates. Um, but it's, it's mostly reserved for Jane. She's like the assistant to Jane. Uh, and honestly, she loses pretty much all personhood and just becomes the personification of magic. And of, like, belief in magic. Once Jane believes, then she has access to the magic. Um, But I do think that there was one just kind of fun line where, uh, like, Peter is is done for. Like, Hook Hook has him. Uh, And Jane appears. And they're like, oh no, a little girl. And then Tink appears. And they're like, oh no, a little girl and a fairy. (laughs) Who cares? And then they they cause some trouble. Uh, she she definitely puts up a fight. So I appreciated that she got to get in on the action in that a little bit. Two thousand and three, Peter Pan. Yeah, in, in this, I I also think that uh, Tinkerbell is probably the weakest element overall because she is kind of a plot device. Like she never quite feels like a fully fleshed out character. And then you know she gets poisoned, uh, and and because of the poisoning, that's when they do the whole like I do believe in fairies thing. Um, 
which cures her after um, Peter sort of like telepathically has all of Neverland and all of London chant their belief in fairies, which I feel like I, well, I know it's, it, it's a callback to the like audience participation of the, of the stage version. Um, and like, it's, it's really well put together, like as sort of a, a montage of like all these clips of people say, like, I do believe in fairies, like it is rousing in the moment, but then you're like, I don't know that I would care about this character if this character wasn't named Tinkerbell. Um, so I, it's kind of the weakest element uh, overall of what otherwise is a very strong adaptation. Uh, and she's not in Pan at all. Sad, but good to know. Yeah, um, he's better that. off. Honestly. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Once upon a time, she doesn't really connect with Peter that much. Like, I mean, she does. She and Peter have some moments. She and Hook have some moments. But she really has, like, the crux of her plot line is with the evil queen from Snow White. So they just, they took her out of Peter mm-hmm. Pan. And that might have been for the best. She was definitely more interesting outside of it. So the in Once Upon a Time, uh, Tinkerbell is jaded because she tried to be basically like a fairy godmother uh, type figure and it didn't work. So she lost like her magic and is just like existing in Neverland, kind of being really bitter about everything in life, which is kind of funny, to be honest, Uh, kind of funny to see such a different version of her and then she gets an actual arc a little bit more uh later on the lost girls also does not have tinkerbell at all um which is possibly for the best i i think if (laughs) if she was in it she would probably be like the personification of like women telling other women that they like are worthless i don't know um, so probably for the best there. And then, uh, what about Peter Pan and Wendy? So Tinkerbell is played by Yara Shahidi, I think is the first, is she the first Tinkerbell of color? Again, I haven't seen, I've not, I have not seen an exhaustive list of Peter Pan adaptations, but, but she I really liked this version of Tinkerbell. I'd be interested to know Ryan's take on it because it is different. She's not jealous at all. Like there's no jealousy in this character. She acts, she does act as a plot device in some ways because her magic is the thing that makes people fly. But she also interacts with the other characters and has conversations with them, albeit they have to kind of, guess what she's saying based on like the bells you know because it, it does the, her mouth moves she is saying things and if you can read lips you can kind of understand what she's saying but what comes out is like the bell sound i'm starting to realize like midway through this conversation that maybe tinkerbell needs to be one of those characters who like the audience doesn't understand and that we only get like interpretations through body language and other characters because maybe that's why the julia roberts character doesn't work so well um because she actually talks um, but there is also a great scene where uh, Wendy says something to Tinkerbell 
And, you know, she responds back and Wendy says, well, you know, that's their loss that they can't understand you or that they don't listen to you or whatever. And so it, it it's like, a, again, like this movie is very interested in like solidarity amongst the women characters. And I, I do think that that comes through a lot with um, with Tinkerbell. She is still pretty devoted to Peter. She's clearly like his best friend, but it is more of a friend dynamic than it is like a a jealous partner. Like I, you know, I'm possessive over this person. Yeah, I, mean, I definitely think the the David Lowry take on it is much more interested in in solidarity and you know sort of very very twenty twenty three. Let's not pit women against each other. Um, but I do think that also sort of mutes her character a little bit. Um, and like through this conversation, maybe I'm realizing that the Disney animated Peter Pan, like the the thing it has going for it the most is probably the best version of Tinkerbell um, because that characterization has so much personality. Um, and I think, you know, at, at least in my rewatching it for this podcast, like I, um, I think that her jealousy comes across in a way that, that that's depicted in kind of like an empathetic, like you get where she's coming from. Um, in her feelings, I think, in that movie more than maybe any other version that I've seen. Well, I wonder, too, because, like, in the adaptation, the fairies kind of raise Peter from an infant to, like, whatever age that he gets, like, frozen at. And so I do wonder if Tinkerbell's jealousy isn't, like, necessarily romantic, if it's more like, who is this other person that's coming in and, like, being a mother to, like, this person who I, you know, basically helped raise? So, like, you know, I, you know, she feels, like, maybe passed over. I don't know. It is an interesting question about, like, the jealousy and, like, does that give Tinkerbell her personality um, or not? I also forgot to mention this earlier. Um, quick note. Ever Anderson plays Wendy in... um Peter Pan and Wendy, the 2023 version. Um, she is also the young Natasha Romanoff in Black Widow, um, which I didn't realize until I looked it up because I was like, this person looks very familiar to me. So if anyone else had that experience, that's where you saw her. <laughs> One other thing that I think the original Disney film has going for it with Tinkerbell is Hook respects Tinkerbell. Um, like, he plans to manipulate her, but like, I think he calls her like Miss Bell at one point, but like, like he is like, this is a force and she can be on my side if I get her to be on my side. I said he's very charming in that respect it, it, He to get what he wants. You know? But definitely because Tinkerbell is powerful. Isn't Smee like playing a violin in the background <laughs> of that scene? <laughs> I think like it's, like, it's it's a whole like yeah. it's a date or like a business arrangement like I'm gonna wine and dine you kind of like setup. he's yeah he's whining and dining her he's like he's putting yeah. it on like for her for sure which is you know yeah whether or not it's a front he is treating her as an equal meanwhile Peter says oh if you don't like Wendy then I want nothing to do with you ever again which is on the one hand she tried to murder her. So justified. Fair. On the other hand, <laughs> this has the been Wendy your best bird. friend for God knows how long. And you're just like, you're gone. Bye. But that's how Peter is, though. People are, like, disposable. Um, and so, like, 
That makes sense. And it makes sense why she'd be hurt. I will also say I enjoy adaptations that actually show us Tinkerbell's like living arrangements in the house. Like Hook does this. Um, I love the set of Hook. Like it's amazing. And we don't have to talk about it in any kind of detail. But like she has her own little like almost a birdhouse, like with like her own little bedroom and stuff. And like certain adaptations will show you like that she has her own living, tiny living arrangements. And I always like it when they they show us that. Return to Neverland has, like, she has, like, a little, like, hole in the wall, kind of, but they've got a leaf pinned to it so that she has, like, a, a door of sorts, and she's got yeah. a bed. And... <laughs> I yeah. love that. I I think it's just such a, a weird thing that, you know, Ryan and I talked about this in our previous episodes. Tinkerbell is one of the most iconic Disney images, and yet, like, we could have gone this entire podcast without talking about her in some ways because her character has been so much either plot device or jealousy, at least up until the Pixie Hollow movies, mm-hmm. which nobody uh, chose to talk about for this particular No, episode. that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, someday Ryan will probably uh, have to watch at least a couple of those to... To dive into Tinkerbell in, in just a little bit more depth. Yeah, I want to know what she's got going on when she's not uh, dealing with theater. <laughs> um, so I'm, we're going uh, pretty long at this point. So I have two more questions that you can answer kind of as one. I'm just going to go to each person. Uh, so your questions. Are each of your assigned movie, show, whatnot, uh, better or worse than the Disney version. And because I have two and I've been speaking for Once Upon a Time, uh, Victoria, do you want to speak uh, on Once Upon a Time as well? Sure. Yeah, I could speak for Once Upon a Time. I've seen it extensively, so I can talk about it for sure. So are your versions better or worse than Disney? And then if you could tell pers- people to watch only one, what would it be? Those those are my closing questions for everybody. Okay. Um, so as far as the musical, I would say compared to the Disney movie, it's like, it's so close. It's, I would say it's a step or two above the Disney movie, but it, again, it's really, it's cutting it very close. But I would definitely recommend it to people over the Disney movie just because it's it is a joy to watch and it's really funny and weird. And I like to show people strange things. (laughs) It's um, like it's cheesy, I guess you would say. But like that's it plays into the camp because you have people in animal costumes. The crocodile is a guy in a suit. Nana is somebody in a suit. They have um, all these background animals that, um, that you know, show up for the end fight. There's like an ostrich and uh, all these other animals. And, um, and there's a one point where Tiger Lily comes up to save Peter. And she's got her, you know, her backup tribe with her. And they're, they're rolling in on scooters. So it's just, it's. It's crazy and fun, so I would absolutely recommend that over the Disney 
even though the Disney is more, you know, I would say more iconic and popular. But like this is, it's really, I mean, um, Mary Martin and Cyril Richard, who are Peter and Hook, they won um, Tonys for their Broadway performance of this show before it became televised. And when it was televised, it was the first full length uh, Broadway musical to be shown live on TV in color. So it did really well. And that's why it got, you know, several other recordings and, you know, made its way through onto VHS. And then I guess for a while they showed it on the Disney Channel in like the 90s, which I have no memory of because I was only born in 93. But like, you know. It definitely, I think it deserves more love. So I would absolutely tell people to watch that. And the music is really good, you know, outside of the things that are a bit culturally insensitive. Um, I still have it, you know, I'll play it if I can't sleep at night. It's great. So absolutely would put the musical above, you know, recommending the Disney. It's hard to separate just that arc from the whole of Once Upon a Time, because I feel like Once Upon a Time as a whole did something really fun and different and interesting that sort of deepened a lot of fairy tales and made all these interesting connections. But um, I wished that Once Upon a Time had gone more into Neverland than it actually did. I feel like it was just more, it was Peter-centric. And it just, it was focused on, you know, really being dark. And I feel like they didn't have, you know, enough time to like explore all of the island and all of the characters. Like, I feel like they could have done a bit more with it, but um, the writing was still solid. So, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think for this one, I would probably say that I would put Disney... I would push that as a recommendation for somebody to watch. Just because, like, if I wanted to show them the essence of the story, that would give them a more solid idea instead of throwing them into something that is kind of dark and twisted from what the original story was. Yeah, some of the adaptations definitely, if you don't know the original story, they're going to be kind of hard to to get properly. Mm-hmm. And Once Upon a Time definitely has some issues with that. And then for your recommendation, that could be any, whether they're, you know, what you watched for this or any Peter Pan thing that you uh, enjoy. Would you still stick with the musical or would you suggest another uh, Peter Pan adaptation? Ooh, oh, I would have to go with the 2003 because that one was just so well done. Like, that was beautiful. It really was. And I feel like it captures a lot more of the the story, the book and play. So that's like that's definitely top tier for me. So I would say the answer to both to for both of the adaptations I talked about, is this better or worse than the Disney movie? Is both are better than the Disney movie. I have to say, as someone who grew up loving the Disney movie and who like, I have a lot of memories of watching that particular VHS over and over again in my house when I was a child. I don't know if I can watch it again. Like it's like one of those films that I watched a couple years ago and was like, that might be it for me. Like, I don't know if I can, 
I don't know if I could sit through all of this again, um, just because it is so like the racism is so bad in it. Um, but these movies, I think, capture a lot of what makes that movie good and extends it even further. Um, so like Hook, I think, is just a classic um, in terms of it's a 90s film, it's Spielberg, it's, you know, Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman. Like, it, it's really hard to go wrong with the combination of things that goes into Hook. And it feels very, it, it, it captures the spirit of Peter Pan while asking new questions of that narrative. And I think um, for whatever reason that I did not watch it after the first couple of times, like, I, I do feel like this movie is good to watch like as a family, like you could watch this with kids and, you know, they would get something out of it, but adults also get things out of it as well. Um, the David Lowry, Peter Pan, I found myself wishing it was a little bit more whimsical, which is really a weird thing to say about a movie made by the same person who made the green Knight. Um, but I really liked it. And the more I think about it, the more I like it because I like the, the script writing, especially, and I really like the way that they updated a lot of the characters up to and including Hook. Um, like I said, he has some of the best lines of the film. But I did kind of miss a little bit more of that sense of lived in whimsy that you get in Hook. Again, like the sets are just like incredible. And I know Spielberg has said that he doesn't like Hook. Like he said that like he wishes he would have waited until like technology was better for him to do some of the sets. No, I don't understand why. <laughs> I think the sets are amazing. Um and, and again, it feels very lived in, like it feels like people actually live in this place. And yet it's so whimsical and so different and so um, new. Um, and so that's kind of what I felt was missing from the Lowry um, adaptation was maybe a little bit more of that, um, that lived in whimsy. Um, so I would say they're both better than the original Disney movie. As far as only recommending one adaptation, it's really hard to choose for me between Hook and the 2003. Um, the 2003 is just so, for all of its own problems, it is to me like the quintessential, like capturing that spirit of the book um, and trying to get that sense of whimsy. Um, so I, I guess I'm going to steal Ryan's answer from earlier and say you should just double feature those two and then call it a day. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what we ended up saying about some some of the Cinderella adaptations too. Like, let, <laughs> let's just have a double feature. Double feature it. Yeah, as as the consensus uh, seems to be, the the 2003 version does seem like the you know best canonical version of the Peter Pan story. Um, and I do think one of the things that you know also connects it to Hook is that it was also all filmed on sound stages. Yeah, there's definitely more. There's more use of digital effects in it than there are in Hook because it, you know, it comes 12 years later, um, and digital effects are just that much more prominent uh, by then. But, um, but I think having Neverland be a place that is is actually built in an artificial way emphasizes the whimsical nature of it. Um, and so, like I. In reading about it, you know, they had originally wanted to film like in Australia, New Zealand and Indonesia and Tahiti and, and all these places. But the um, I, I, the Australian dollar at the time was so cheap that they saved so much money by actually just filming the whole thing on sound stages. But 
Um, again, I think that sort of like, you know, stagecraft artificialness actually really works for Neverland more than even shooting on location uh, would be. And, you know, I, I think of the core Peter Pan story, it, it's clearly the best uh, adaptation overall. And then Pan is like, one, a bad movie, and, and two, like, doesn't feel like a Peter Pan movie. Um, you know, which... If it were a better movie, I wouldn't care as much. I would still be like, well, it's kind of its own thing, but like it is really fun and, and whatever. And I think there's a lot of good and interesting ideas in it. Uh, but it just it just falls flat so often. Um there was there's a lot of me watching Pan where I was like, I'm just bored. Like, you know, and um I just don't care about anything that's that's happening. I'm not invested in this version of the story at all. Um so yeah, I, I would reiterate that, you know, for me, especially because I just have so much childhood nostalgia for Hook, like, I think that's probably the first Spielberg movie I saw in the theater when I was a kid and we had the VHS and everything. You know, I, I would, I definitely look forward to double featuring uh, the 2003 Peter Pan and Hook back to back because I think that, I think that would be a really fun way to, you know, dig into the Peter Pan story. And I do think both are actually probably really good family movies you know like i i saw hook when i was a kid with with my family and you know and we all enjoyed it um you know i know among people who were adults when it came out in 1991 it has kind of a bad reputation but i think i think it might be spielberg's best like kids movie like it is a movie targeted towards kids i think even more than something like et actually is but would you say that Pan is better or worse than the Disney version? So I'm going to say that the Disney version is better despite the abhorrent racism, because at least it is an adaptation of J.M. Barry. Fair enough. Okay. Um, and then let's see. Um, so going back to the questions... The Lost Girls versus uh, a Disney movie. I don't like either. Um, I I would say if you went, if you want the feel of magic, watch the Disney movie. If you want the exploration of trauma and family dynamics, uh, watch the Lost Girls. But in either case, be prepared for some very uncomfortable, disappointed viewing, which I, I feel really bad saying that. Um, Return to Neverland, I a thousand percent think is better than the original Disney movie. Uh, I will say when I rewatched it, I realized that it is just stealing bits and pieces from what worked in the Renaissance era. Uh, cause it came out in, uh, 2001 or 2002, you know, the, instead of the crocodile, you have the kraken and there's a lot of like vaguely Ursula stuff going on with that. Um, Jane's adventures. I kept just hearing, um, go the distance from Hercules playing in my mind. Uh, so <laughs> I, I feel like it, it took what worked in Disney's Peter Pan and then took what worked in Renaissance era Disney and flung them together into a movie. 
Uh, apparently, other people don't agree with me. Apparently, the ratings are not uh, good for Return to Neverland. Um, I I really do enjoy it um, and recommend it. But I think... I, I'm tempted to actually say I would put Return to Neverland at the top. But that might just be that it is, like, my movie. Watching it, I understand why I grew up as the person I grew up as. Uh, cause I was very similar to Jane. <sighs> but yeah, the 2003 Peter Pan is really good. Hook is really good. Uh, okay, we're gonna make it a triple feature. <laughs> you got 2003 Peter Pan. Got Return to Neverland, where we see Wendy's sequel. And then you've got Hook, where we see Peter's sequel. And I think that makes a bumpy ride, but it would work, maybe, possibly. I'm really bad at deciding things. <laughs> So, so the summary is, uh, Hook is interesting, uh, and often sexy. Women sometimes have personalities <laughs> in Peter Pan adaptations. Uh, Tinkerbell is disappointing. And people keep trying to make edgy Peter Pan happen. And the majority of the time, it doesn't work. That, <laughs> is that kind of our synopsis? Yep. That wraps it up in a nice big bow. <laughs> and in conclusion, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, we never went back to Smee. Yes. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> what about Smee? I, I do just I do just want to give a quick shout out to Rufio as Aww. one of the most nineties characters to ever nineties. And the voice um, of Suko. From Avatar yes. The Last Airbender. He turned out all right. So thank you again, uh, Victoria and Tessa, for joining us on this episode. Uh, Victoria, if you have social media accounts that are public that people may want to find you at, uh, feel free to name Absolutely what those Absolutely not. Are. I do not want to be found. Valid. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but Tessa, you can remind people of where to find you online uh, slash your two regular uh, podcasts. Yeah, so you can find me on Blue Sky, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at The By Paradox. You can also find me on my two other podcasts that I talked about at the beginning of the episode, Nanny Og's Book Club, which is my Terry Pratchett reread podcast, and Fang Bangers Pod, which is a True Blood rewatch podcast. You can find either of those wherever you listen to podcasts. And so next time on Dream With Mind and Heart, um, it will be a little bit, as this is actually the official end of all of our season three uh, episodes. This is our last bonus episode for season three. Uh, we will be back again in February, date to be determined based on our recording schedule and lives and things. But we will be back in February, um, and we're going to kick off season four with two bonus episodes, both about Disneyland. Uh, the first about Disneyland, the television show. The second about Disneyland, the theme park. 
And then our first official main episode of season four is going to be uh, talking about one of my favorite movies of all time, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So I'm very excited to get to that. Um, So until then, uh, thank you so much for listening with us uh, through our first three seasons, our first roughly our first year of uh, doing this show. We put out a lot of episodes, actually. Um, I'm very proud of all the, the work we've done so far. I'm excited for the new stuff. Um, and so, you know, during our break, when you're uh, seeing family for holidays, uh, you know, feel free to, to drop drop us. Just, you know, tell people about the show, that you're enjoying it. Um, there's plenty of time to catch up. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you can uh, reach us through email at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter uh, at dreammindheart and on Instagram at dreamwithmindandheart. Uh, by the time we come back for season four, we will also have a Blue Sky account, and I will actually try to start using the Instagram. <laughs> so more to come there. Uh, and then again, thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, uh, Honey Badger Spoke for our theme song, uh, and of course our editor, Tessa Swale, who gets a thank you uh, live and in person and not uh, time, time diffused, time delayed. Uh, it's gotten late. Um, <laughs> so again, that officially wraps up season three. Thanks again for listening, and uh, we will see you in February. Yay, we did it. <laughs>